We're almost at the edge of history when we go to 11,600 years ago. That's the date that Gobekli Tepe in Turkey is built. That, weirdly, is the date that Plato's Timaeus and Critias gives for the submergence of Atlantis. Archaeologists roll their eyes at any mention of Atlantis. Flat Earth for archaeologists. Yeah, it's flat, uh, it's yeah. flat Earth. Yeah. I want to talk about Antarctica. I was very interested in Antarctica. There's undoubtedly a time when Antarctica was lush and green. The question is, was it lush and green during the lifetime of the human species? Yes. He did know that other pyramids had their entrance in the North Face, and that is the entrance through which you will have gone when you entered the Great Pyramid. It's called Mamoun's Hole. Uh, I'm doing a debate with a leading archaeologist on the Joe Rogan experience. It's a very good thing that this is happening. The mainstream has normally said, now we don't want to talk to you guys, you're loony tunes, we're not going to give you a platform. But in this case, it is happening. I have things to say that I'm going to preserve my ammunition oh, for. Nice. So on psychedelics, particularly on ayahuasca, I have felt the presence of the entity that I call Mother Ayahuasca. She took the form of an enormous serpent who wrapped herself around my body. I felt enormously comforted. And again, I got a message that I've had many times is that you won't be good at giving love to others if you don't love yourself. What's up everybody and welcome to Flagrant and today we're incredibly excited because we're sitting down with the godfather, okay? Mm. Mm. The godfather of my YouTube rabbit holes for the last <laughs> maybe five years, six years, <laughs> yeah. years beyond that. We have Grant Hancock hey. in the building. Thank you. thank you for having me on the show. No, I thank you. It. I actually went to see the pyramids because of you. I'm very glad to hear that. It was uh, it was a mind-bending experience. And when was that? This is, God, when exactly was this? Four years ago? Mm -hmm. Pandemic kind of yeah. makes things it was like three, a little maybe. murky, maybe yeah. three, but it was pre-pandemic. Well, the Giza, yeah. the Giza Plateau and those, those three massive pyramids and the satellite pyramids, an amazing place. And the Great Pyramid itself is totally, utterly unique, extraordinary, and, and, and special. I have a... I have a long relationship with the Great Pyramid. I yeah. saw, I Very saw long. this unbelievable story of you going to the top. I tried to get, to, I got like a quarter of the way up by myself, yeah. and I was there with my wife, and I was like, I'm not trying to get arrested yeah. and have her just be alone in Egypt. Mm. And so I, I pushed it out and I went back down. Probably a wise decision because you could have spent some year or two in jail. Wow! <laughs> really? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow! Did you get locked up when you went up top? No, the the the. Illegal climbs that we did, the first, the first illegal climb involved four o'clock in the morning and a lot of bribery. Um, and how much, how much was it back in the day to get? I'm trying. This was like 1996. Might even have been earlier. It might have been 1994. And um, we had, we had a local guy who made contact with all the guards around the pyramid. We paid him money, I forget the exact amount. He said he'd paid them off. But then when we got to the base of the pyramid, we had to walk all the way around it, which is a considerable distance, 750 feet along each side. We had to walk all the way around it, and then we had to add more money to each of the guards at the four corners. Hmm. Um, and then we, we went up, and my advice to anybody who's climbing the Great Pyramid which is pretty much impossible these days, either legally or legally, is go up the southwest corner. Because the southwest corner is pretty intact, it's pretty much a straight line. You can follow it all the way to the... To the what is the entrance on? North side. That's north. Yeah. So south... The opposite West. side, and the south, south, yeah. southwest, yeah. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. Which is the opposite side to the Great Sphinx. And, um, and then nobody's looking at you. Well, it's, it's good for that. Muslims are all facing east then, to pray, But so then you got after the whole we, were, we were a few courses up, and another guard turned up with a shotgun. I don't think he would have reached us Whoa. from that distance, wow. but there were, there were threats. And we had to promise to pay him more, more money. So he points the shotgun. Yeah, kind he's of. He's threatening you. Yeah, you guys go, we'll pay you. And he's like, okay, well, now you can Basically, be Basically, yeah, yeah, we did a deal that we'd pay him when we came down. And, did uh, you? 
Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's good to keep your promises. That's and then, true. and then we climbed. We Do you remember climbed. how much you paid? I actually don't. Um, but, but back in back in the day, um, nineteen. I guess it was probably nineteen ninety four. Um, it would have seemed a lot to me at that time, <laughs> but it also, but it also seemed seemed worth it. It was a fantastic adventure, yeah. uh, starting starting in the in in the dark or the, just the beginning of dawn light, and yeah. and you know cl- climbing up to the top, taking shelter at various points behind bits as as other guards appeared, finally getting finally getting to the top. Um, and then the light coming up and just this majestic, majestic oh, view. So cool. Sunrise and on the, the top yeah, of the Yeah, sunrise great on top of the Great Pyramid. And the second pyramid, you know, to your south, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing to see. And it was an amazing experience. I would regard it as one of the peak experiences of my life. Wow. Um, I did have one other illegal climb, which was just fortunate. It was um, following the the holiday of Ramadan. They have um, they have a, a thing called the Eid, which is a celebration. And there were, I would guess, there were thirty thousand Kyrenes on the Giza plateau having picnics, and they just decided they were going to climb the Great Pyramid. Not all thirty thousand, but several hundred of them. And we just joined them, me and me and wow. Santa, and we and we climbed we climbed with them. And that's one that actually is one of the moments when I realized how difficult the Great Pyramid must have been to build. Because, because the biggest danger climbing up there with several hundred people on the pyramid was other people coming up and down. Mm. So imagine managing that with, with all the blocks. With all the blocks and, and, and supposedly a huge workforce and ramps or whatever the Egyptologists imagined was done. And I don't believe anybody knows how it was done. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was the, the, the biggest risk was people bumping into you, people going around you as, you, as, you climb, as you're climbing up. Um, but again, we, we, got, we got to the top. And then I had three legal climbs in those days when those were allowed, doing various filming projects back in the When do you see your last name inscribed in the block? I think this it, is an incredible story. Yes, it is. I think it, was, I think it was on the second or third climb. I'm not absolutely sure. I think it may have been one of the legal type climbs because it was daylight and we were relaxed. Uh, as we were not when there were hundreds of other people up there with us. So I think it may have been the th- may have been one of the legal crimes. And and there I did see, and it's on the south side of the uh, of, of of the Great Pyramid, the south the, the the southeast side, overlooking the boat museum, which used to be there. Um, and there was the name um, P, initial P and Hancock. Um, and at that time, there was a date beside it. And that date, if I recall correctly, was the 5th of April, 1916. Um, oddly enough, 1916. that- 1916. Yeah, now, now my, my granddad was, was a chaplain with British forces um, in Egypt in the First World War. So I had to consider the possibility that it could be him. He was called Philip Hancock. Oh, wow. Um, but it, I couldn't absolutely guarantee that. And, and I was able to confirm it by, by finding my grandfather's diaries. Um, which were little diaries about that high, tiny little writing in them. And um, th- on that date, there, there, there was a single line which said, climb Great Pyramid today. Wow. <laughs> and then I found- And it was dated 1916? Yeah, yeah. And, wow. and then I found his, uh, his biography, which was passed down to me by, by my dad. And um, he also talks about his climb of the Great Pyramid in that, although in very spare terms, doesn't, doesn't say that much about it. When 
I mean, I know it's not that much that he put in there, but did he say it was there was any security? Was this that time, free no. range? Totally, sand is totally covering free, the bottom. Totally of it? free range, the, wow. and, and, and I think the sand was definitely cleared away at that okay. time. But but anybody could climb the Great Pyramid, and and there was in fact the guy who organised our first illegal climb, and I think I can say this safely because he's passed on to the next world, was a guy known locally as Champion. And he was called champion because he was the champion runner of the Great Pyramid. He, hmm. could, he could run all the way to the top of the Great Pyramid. There were times people did that. And it was totally legal and nobody, nobody objected to it at, at, at all. Um, and that went on, I think, certainly through the sort of 70s and 80s. But by the time my wife Santa and I climbed 1994 for the first time, I'm pretty sure it was 94, um, it had become it had become illegal, and now it's totally illegal. It's 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 completely banned. Yeah, uh, and I don't I doubt even if a film crew would get permission to climb to climb the Great Pyramid now. Even like that. Yeah, they they um, they're very careful about it, but, um, and one of the reasons why they're careful about it is that every year at least one person dies. Climb, trying to climb the Great Pyramid. Mm. Uh, it, people still try to climb it illegally. Mm. And, and uh, as you can imagine from the bit of the climb you did, you're looking at a 52 degree slope. Yeah. So once you get up, once you get up 100, 150 feet above the ground, if you lose it and fall, it's over. you're gonna go all the way to the bottom yeah. and, and it's over, yeah. In the beginning, you have a lot of confidence. The first few tiers of, of rocks seem pretty easy. They're not too bad. But I can imagine you're halfway up and you start looking down and it is over if you slip. Totally over. And also the, 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 the course sizes vary. Uh, some of the, some of them are, oh, yeah, the are really get... no more than sort of hip high. Some of the, some of the courses are chest high, so you've got to courses got, are the blocks. The, yeah, I mean okay. the it's laid out in layers, so you know they, it looks like a step pyramid now. It looks it considered it wasn't before. Yeah. In ancient times, it was covered with facing stones. And you can smooth. and you can see some of the facing some stones. Some of the facing still stones there. are still yeah. there down at the bottom of the Great Pyramid. And they give you a sense of how beautiful they were and how and and how magnificently well it was made. Uh, but the theory is, there's no absolute proof of this, that they came off during an earthquake in, I believe, 1301. Uh, and at that time, it's likely that that's when the Great Pyramid lost its summit. Great Pyramid stands at the moment about 450, maybe 455 feet tall, but its original height was 481 feet tall. And you can calculate that from just pursuing the slope of the sides so up to the 30 top. feet came off yeah, in that earthquake? Yeah, so it's a, th th there's a flat platform, or, or rather a, a, even a stepped platform on top of the Great Pyramid with, with one level and then one level, uh, another level. But the calculation is very simple. You just, you just pursue those side lengths up to where they would meet. And according to that calculation, the Great Pyramid was originally 481 feet tall. Wow. Um, so it, it lost, it lost uh, about 30 feet. The question is, was it in fact ever completed? We don't know that for sure. Right. But the general view is that that earthquake brought part of the top of the Great Pyramid tumbling down as well and knocked off the facing stones. And then, of course, it was used as a quarry that's, by local that's people. That's what I've heard, yeah. You know, because it's very, very, very useful to have all this nice cut stone yeah. lying around. And, and, and a lot of those facing stones were taken away. Okay, so after inspiring probably tens of thousands of people to go to the pyramids like myself, mm -hmm. you managed to get banned from Egypt? 
Yes. Is it a real full-time band? Uh, this this is this is not clear to me. We were we got to sneak in, Graham. In my, my <laughs> we got to we got to do one more time. There's a champion junior that yeah. we can bribe. Dude, we need to carve G Hancock right next yeah. to Pete. Hancock. I think this would be good. It's it's very uh, it's very difficult to do that with a film crew, however. That's a very good and this point. is when and this Go is pros. when and this is when it happened uh, is that we my, my Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse, we wanted to film an episode in Egypt which you would have thought the Egyptian authorities would welcome. Um, but when, when they asked who is presenting the show and we said that Graham Hancock is presenting the show. They said no. They said absolutely no way. And they, they, would, not, they would not grant filming permission. Let me tell you something. Under. The Four Seasons in Cairo wants you to do an episode about <laughs> the pyramids. I promise you. Yeah, it would, it would bring a lot of interest and a lot of people. But the, yes. there's, there's a rigid fixed view amongst Egyptologists about the prehistory and the history of ancient Egypt so and what the great questioning is. that questioning that gets you banned. Question, yes. that, that, that's the first that's the first line of defense against a critic or an alternative point of view yes. is simply to deny them access to the site and i yeah. i felt since that happened that i've had my left arm uh, cut off yeah. because Egypt has been very central and very important to my work. Yeah. I, I hope eventually I will, I will get back in. Could I go as a tourist? Maybe. Right. Uh, maybe. Announcement. I'm coming to the motherland. Play the bagpipes, Miles. That's right. The life tour is coming to Glasgow. Okay? Scotland, we're showing up. We're also coming to Dublin. Ireland, we're showing up. And you know what? We are not gonna leave the north of England out. Manchester, we are pulling up. Is it Man City or Man United? We are gonna see who's in the crowd. And whoever shows up more, that's who I'm rooting for for the rest of my existence. So make sure you make the right decision, red or blue, because that's who I'm rocking with afterwards. Okay, those tickets are up for pre-sale right now. Code is Andrew. Get them fast. TheAndrewSchultz.com. Can't wait to see you all. Also, thank you so much, everybody, who sold out the Royal Albert Hall show in London. We did that in a few hours. That was unbelievable. Thank you so much. Cannot wait to do the show in that uh, remarkable venue. TheAndrewSchultz.com for all the tickets. Go get them immediately before they're gone. Can't wait to see you all. Piece did the legal climbs, were they aware you had did the two illegal climbs previously? Yeah. Oh, and they still gave you permission? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. At that, time, at that time, everything was much less sensitive. Everything was much less sensitive until 2015, when, uh, when I had a, the beginnings of a public debate with um, who is regarded as the leading Egyptian Egyptologist, Zahi Hawass. Um, and unfortunately, in that debate, Zahi, it, it's, it's actually on YouTube, bits of it, because there was a member of the audience present. Uh, Zahi massively lost his temper and stormed out. Mm. Um, and then... Uh, so you won. Then I, well, I don't know, but the, the, the debate didn't happen. Then I gave a talk, he sat sulking outside, then he came back, gave his talk, then the audience asked questions. And again, bits of this were filmed, and one of the audience asked him if he knew about a site called Gobekli Tepe mm. in Turkey, which is probably the most important archaeological site in the world at the moment. And Zahi said that he didn't know anything about it at all, and that was on camera. So unfortunately, uh, the man is actually enormously knowledgeable about ancient Egypt, but, un but unfortunately, he came across looking not very good. And, mm. and 
ever since then, my relationship with, with him, which had been okay until 2015, has been extremely negative. Mm. And, and when the Egyptian government are approached for filming permission, which these days is done through the Tourism and Antiquities Permission, when they're approached for tour, filming permission, Zahi's the guy they go to and say, is it okay for these people to come in and film? So I'm gotcha. speculating so if you have beef slightly, with him, then it's not going to happen. It's, it's difficult. And I understand the defensiveness because when you wrap your cultural identity around something or creating something as majestic as the pyramids, mm. feeling as if that's like being ripped away from you can really make you feel as if your identity is being taken from Yeah, you. And, and to be clear, I would, I would never wish to divorce the Great Pyramids from the ancient Egyptians. Uh, there, there, are, there are a lot of wrong ideas about what I think about this. The, that, the, yeah, okay, the, please clarify, because I'm okay. a little lazy on it. Um, the, the clarification is this. Uh, it's complicated, all right? But in, <laughs> inside, the, inside the Great Pyramid, there are four very narrow shafts which point up at the sky. Two of them point north and south from the so-called king's chamber. I say so-called because no burial was ever found in it. Yeah. There was a sarcophagus found in it. It's still there, but you had, they had to build the chamber around it. They couldn't bring it up in a funeral ceremony. It's too big to get through the, through, the, through the corridor. So two shafts point north and south, and they do actually exit on the outside of the body of the pyramid. Mm. And back in the 19th century, explorers climbed up there. There they go. You're looking at the king's chamber, king's chamber south, king's chamber north. And both of those, you could roll cannonballs down them from the outside and they would turn up in the king's chamber. But the, sub, the, the shafts of the queen's chamber are more complicated until I believe it was 1872. Nobody knew they were there. The, the, the inner wall of the queen's chamber was completely smooth. Mm -hmm. But there was a, uh, actually he was a Freemason called John Wayman Dixon who had explored the king's chamber and he figured, look, there's shafts in the king's chamber, maybe there's shafts in the queen's chamber. And he went around knocking on the walls and he found two hollow points and he broke those through. You could do that in 1872. And lo and behold, they opened up into these two shafts, which go horizontally at first and then point up at the sky. They do not exit on the outside of the pyramid. They're very, very mysterious. The thing is that the angle of those shafts points to significant stars, four significant stars, uh, in the period in which Egyptologists believe that the Great Pyramid was built. Archaeoastronomy, uh, which is a universal language, one of them is the lowest of the three stars of Orion's belt. And the, the constellation of Orion was identified with the god Osiris. He was seen as the celestial image of the god Osiris. So having a shaft pointing at, at the belt of, of Orion makes or sense. Osiris makes perfect sense. And others point at two of the, uh, the two northern shafts point at two of the circumpolar stars. I forget exactly which ones now. Um, and again, they point at them in the era when the pyramids were built because the positions of stars in the sky change very slowly down the ages. So from an archaeoastronomical point of view, it would be absurd to disconnect the Great Pyramid entirely from the ancient Egyptians, but there's a problem. And that problem is the ground pattern of the three Great Pyramids and their relationship to, it's not an accident that Orion's Belt has three stars and that the Great Pyramids are three mm -hmm. uh, and that they are positioned on the ground. In, anybody can see it in a pattern that looks very similar to Orion's Belt. It's like a painter has got his easel in front of him and his, and his canvas and he's looking up at the sky and he's painting on the canvas the three stars of Orion's Belt and then he lowers that canvas down to his feet and that's what you have on the 
the ground at, mm. at Giza. It's that perfect. It's, it's, it's that perfect, but it's only perfect 12,500 years ago, <laughs> roughly. <laughs> roughly, roughly 12,000, let's say around figure 12,000 years ago. Yeah. These changes in the sky are actually caused by a motion of the Earth itself. It's a very slow motion, it's a cycle, it takes 25,920 years to complete. Um, and and um, the pattern of the stars on the ground and their, uh, the stars in the sky and the pyramids on the ground and their relationship to the Nile River and the Milky Way locks perfectly at 12,000 about 12,000 years ago for, not not on a single day but over an epoch of, of about a thousand years and then right. it gradually shifts out because this is a very very slow change that takes place so so you have the ground the ground saying 12,500 years ago yeah. and you have the shaft saying 4,500 years ago so one might assume that those shafts were maybe carved out at a different time potentially well yes what, what the way I look at it is I think the site was sacred more than 12,000 years ago right I think ground platforms were created there it's important to remember the Great Pyramid is already built around a natural hill the first 30 feet inside the Great Pyramid is a natural mound and there are traditions in ancient Egypt of the primeval mound. And oh. if you go, if you enter the Great Pyramid, and they may or may, you may or may not have been able to do that when I you did, went there. I went did you get down to the subterranean chamber? I no. think everything was, oh no, we did. The subterranean was much bigger. You went, you, we, was we, it a very rough hewn chamber cut out of solid bedrock or was it a built chamber? There's the built one that we saw the circle. The, is it called a sarcophagus? No. Yes, the, that's the king's chamber. We that's went where, to the king's chamber, yeah. but I believe that there was another one Hmm. I well, can't remember. you can see that on the screen there, you can see the subterranean chamber. You see the entrance in the north face. Yep. Uh, no, and, I don't think we went that far. And then you, we went okay. to, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. about 100 feet vertically beneath the base of the Great Pyramid. Wow. Uh, and it's about 600 feet beneath the apex of the Great Pyramid. Wow. Uh, and, and it's cut out of solid bedrock. And my view is, and it's only a theory, and I don't claim that I'm correct, it's just, just put this forward for thought, is that the original sacred site on the Giza Plateau was that natural primeval mound beneath which the ancient hew, ancients hewed out this enormous subterranean chamber, which is a rough, it looks like a rough unfinished chamber, but it has curious acoustic effects. Uh, which are which are in, in themselves very interesting, this and is then the I that people talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing place to be, and act, and actually you get a resonance. Uh, we tried an experiment with a with an opera singer um, uh, up in the um, uh, up in the king's chamber. You could hear her down in the in the subterranean chamber, uh, which is which is quite quite remarkable in itself. But I think that was the original sacred site. I think there was there, the ground platforms were put in position, uh, and I think the ancient Egyptians finished off the job in a brilliant way. Uh, in, in a brilliant way, overbuilding and commemorating and memorizing a, a site of enormous significance and importance to them. Sorry, when you say finished off, I'm dumb, so I'm going to ask dumb questions. When you say finished off, what exactly do you theorize? I think means? the vast majority of the great pyramids as we see them today were the work of the ancient Egyptians. Okay, got but it. But I think they were building on a, on a prehistoric foundation. Okay. And it, had been, and it had been sacred for so thousands of So your point is not to 
take away from what ancient, you think they built most of it. You think we are just discounting that there might've been people here 12,500 years ago that also built Correct. something. Correct, because that yes. runs against the archeological mainstream. And this is where, this is where you get into issues of geology and the issue of the Great Sphinx. Uh, because I think, again, it's just my theory. I don't claim I'm 100% right and everybody's got to listen to me and tell the Egyptologists to go away. I just, just my view is that on the Giza Plateau were the three massive ground platforms of the three Great Pyramids, the subterranean chamber beneath what is now the Great Pyramid, uh, the megalithic temples, the, the so-called Vali Temple and the, and the Sphinx Temple right beside the Sphinx, and the so-called Mortuary Temples. These are all megalithic that stand beside the Great Pyramids. But those I are think, the three little ones that are next to them? No, those, them those, are, those are the so-called satellite pyramids. Okay. But there are, there are megalithic temples. When, when I say megalithic, you're looking at, at structures where the largest single block weighs 200 tons. These are, these are gigantic, wow. gigantic yeah. blocks of stone. But of particular interest, right in front of the Great Sphinx is an almost completely ruined one. And then just to the south of the Great Sphinx is a rather intact one uh, called the Vali Temple. And this, this temple is, again, bears evidence of being built in two stages. Uh, because when you look at it, you see that its core is made of limestone, enormous limestone blocks in the range of 50 to 100 tons each, maybe more. You can bring this up, Mark? In the one on the left, you can see the limestone blocks up at the top. That's the original structure. And, yeah. and I and my, my colleagues, and particularly Professor Robert Schock from Boston University, who is a geologist, are of the view that the ancient Egyptians renovated a far more ancient limestone temple. So you can see the weathering on the limestone temple, yeah. and then you can see the granite blocks that were added by the ancient Egyptians. And the, and the puzzle of those blocks is that they are carefully cut to fit around the weathering in the limestone core blocks. So A, they were respecting those limestone core blocks. They weren't demolishing them. It would be easy just to cut them flat, you know, if you're gonna do this, but no, they didn't. They carefully cut each granite block so it would fit around the weathering pattern. We'd only do that if you thought that a place was sacred. You felt it was special it. and mm. you, were trying, you were trying to preserve it. Likewise, the Sphinx. Again, I need yeah. to pay tribute to others. I need to pay tribute to John Anthony West, who yep. was an independent Egyptologist, brilliant man, dear friend Rest of mine. Rest in peace, right? Pa yes, passed yep. away in 2018. He used to call academics quackademics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he was a master of vitriol. Yeah. And um, uh, he, he was the first to draw attention to the possibility that the Great Sphinx may also be a multi-phase monument, not just a monument built yeah. in the fourth dynasty, 2500 BC or whatever. He uh, pointed out that there seemed to be very strange erosion patterns. They're harder Those to see on the fissures. body. There might the fissures. be on the walls. But on the surrounding the side, trench, yeah. they're much harder to, they're much easier to see. And then he brought Professor Robert Schock from, from Boston University, who is a geologist, and Schock agreed that what we're looking at here in the, in the fissures around the side of the Great Sphinx, and to some extent on the body of the Sphinx, is what's called precipitation-induced weathering. It's not a flood. Yeah. It's weathering that's caused by exposure to a very long period of heavy, heavy rainfall. Right. And then you have to get into paleoclimatology. When did it rain on the Giza Plateau enough to cause this level of exposure and, 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 and weathering? You can see the, the outer trench. The Great Sphinx is cut out of solid bedrock. They created a trench around its body and the, body, the core body was left in place. I and my colleagues think that core body goes back 12,000 plus years. It was originally in the form entirely of a lion with a massive leonine head. But then by the time that the dynastic period of ancient Egypt came along, the Great Sphinx 
was very damaged, particularly its head jutting up above the plateau. And we suggest that at that time, the head of the Great Sphinx was recarved uh, into a human head wearing yeah. a classic Nemes headdress of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. Can you bring up quickly the Sphinx that is covered up to its neck in sand? So this is what the ancient Egyptians probably were looking at. Yeah, right? they, 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 were, they were looking at a, at a monument cover, yeah, like that. I mean, this there, is... There, there's many times during its history when that's all there was, you know? Yeah. That was the bit, that, was the bit that, got, that got damaged. And we think back 4,500 years ago, 2,500 yeah. BC, it was like that then too, uh, but it was a lion head. Mm -hmm. And it was very damaged, and they felt they're going to recarve it into, into a human head. And, and it is out of proportion with the rest of the body. Which of again state. does give credit to the Egyptians. Just, I'm just trying to cause yeah. you up to the Egyptian government here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we want credit. you back in. Yeah. Also, the yeah. Hebrews think, are, are okay with the, this. I, so yeah. we, <laughs> I think the ancient Egyptians massively venerated this site from the beginning. It was it yeah. was the place of the beginning. It was the right. place of the first time. Yeah, a place a time that they called Zetepi. And, and I think I think their their project was to honor and memorialize it. And then this is where we get into spooky areas, which the Egyptologists don't like. Mm -hmm. Which is I'm suggesting like that a, that a body of knowledge was carried down with within ancient Egyptian culture, and that a certain moment came when it was decided to turn the Giza Plateau back on again, and that body of knowledge was manifested in the construction of the Great Pyramids. It's very peculiar that the quality of workmanship on the Great Pyramid, and indeed on the other two pyramids at Giza, um, is uh, extremely high. But go a generation later, two generations later to the fifth dynasty, go to the pyramid of Unas at Saqqara, uh, where, where the, the so-called pyramid texts are inscribed in, inside the, the so-called tomb chamber. And um, that pyramid, the exterior of it is a mess. It's a very poorly built, it's very poorly constructed. Yeah. You know, you you look at it; it just looks like a heap of stones. Whereas the Great Pyramid today is still a majestic, a majestic structure. Yeah. So it's as though they, as though they put everything they had into to the try it, to replicate it, but they just try, try to replicate. And then, and then, a generation this or two later, they could. Here, that's, right? that's the Pyramid of Unas. Yeah. You know? What if it's just like the Knicks, where like the father did a really good job, and then the next generation just really fucked the whole thing up? Yeah, yeah I mean, it could be. It could be. But it's 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 pointless a, it's shots a, it, it's on a, my team. Like, it's, it, no, it's a fair. It's a fair. It's a fair point. You it's know, I mean, <laughs> human societies go up and down, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and and that and that can happen. But that's 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 my view also with the idea of a lost civilization that we can have an apex and they can fall into a slump and they can come out again. But is knowledge preserved and passed down through the ages? Yes, I think it is. Now, yeah. why wouldn't the people in the Nile Valley at that time, twelve thousand years ago, also not be Egyptian? Like, could they still be ethnically Egyptian at that time? Well, I think the I I, I think in a way. I think in a way, I, I'm actually deeply uninterested in ethnic matters. Um, I, I'm, I'm, when I come to relate to and evaluate a, a fellow human being or, or a culture, I, I'm, I'm interested in the ideas that those people have. I'm not, I'm not interested in their genes. I think, I think actually genes are vastly overrated. They're, they're the least important aspect of a human being. They've been blown up into huge importance in, in our culture today, but I think, I think skin color, genes, ethnicity, none of these things really matter. Human beings are the same all over the world. It's been my privilege to travel the world for the, for, for intensely for, for, for the best part of 40 years. And w whether I go to the remotest village in, in the remotest corner of the Amazon or whether I find myself in New York City, once I get down to talking face to face with a fellow human being, they're just a fellow human being, yeah. just, like, just like me. And, and they have the same hopes, the same dreams, the same fears as every other human being. So I think 
think we make, we make too many divisions. I love cultural differences. Yeah. Cultural differences are great. Differences on, in ideas are great. But genetic differences are trivial, in my view. And the, and, and, um, the, things that, the things that divide us as human beings are far less important than the things that unite us as yeah. human beings. And I think maybe it's high time we recognize that. So, so whether the modern Egyptians are ethnically connected in any close way to the ancient Egyptians is, is a matter that I regard as fundamentally unimportant. Mm. They, the modern Egyptians also honor and respect the, the, the great pyramids yes. uh, and, and ancient Egyptian culture. And that's what, that's what matters to me. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, picking back on that, like how do you feel about the criticism that you got some people saying you're racist after the <laughs> Netflix yeah. Well, that, that criticism was... was Because um, that's why we brought you on. We're like, we hope you're racist. We like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of let me down with this whole everyone's equal talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was interesting. Uh, the, the subject of race is never mentioned in my Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. It's never mentioned at all. But when the Society for American Archaeologists wrote an open letter to Netflix demanding that my documentary series be reclassified as science fiction, they accused me of spreading racism, white supremacy, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. None of these issues are ever mentioned in the series. Wait, or, what was misogynistic? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. I, I don't know. And 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 uh, you know, and what for that matter was anti-Semitic. It's uh, very and, and and what was racist? But since race is since race is never mentioned, but what these hmm. labels are very useful for, if you shout them loudly enough, oh, and yeah. if your friends in the media see a nice story here and pick them up and multiply it, what they're very useful for is turning people off the work of an opponent. Yes, and that was that was clearly what went on here. If you're radioactive. I don't even have to debate you because yeah. you're radioactive. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's fund fundamentally what went on. Yeah. Now, what, did, what is the reason for, what, what was the possible, they had no justification for any of the others, but what was the reason for saying that I was spreading racism and white supremacy? It's because in a number of my earlier books, I reported indigenous myths and traditions, particularly from South America and from Mexico, which re in some cases referred to a white-skinned, bearded stranger and his companions who came after a time of darkness, after a great cataclysm, uh, bringing knowledge and teaching knowledge uh, to the inhabitants of the country. Now that is not me saying that, that is indigenous traditions. The view of archeologists today is that many of those traditions were simply made up by the Spanish conquistadors. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's true. There are many, there are many other uh, archeologists who don't agree with that and think that they are true and genuine indigenous traditions and should, be, and should be rightly reported as such. Whether we're referring to Quetzalcoatl in Mexico or to Viracocha um, in uh, the Andes. Uh, these, these traditions, it's a pan-American myth and, it, and, and they're, found, they're not only found in, in the Americas but all over the world. They don't always refer to a person as white skin. You know, the emphasis that, that's put on skin color today is, a, is really recent in human history. It's a few hundred years old. Uh, what, did, did the issue of white skin or black skin carry the same resonance 12,000 years ago that it carries today? I somehow doubt it. I doubt it very much. I don't see why. I don't see why it should, because because the uh, the the abuses of human rights that were taken that, that were that were carried out in the name of color uh, are recent 
developments. They're not ancient developments, you know, and 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 therefore recent in the scale of human history. Recent in the scale of human history. Let's say, let's say the last five or six hundred years, some, something like that. They weren't they weren't really there. They weren't really there before that. But it's a it's a it's a huge distraction from from the major issue. Um, they also refer to these individuals as being bearded. Um, they often refer to there being seven of them. In ancient Mesopotamia, they're called the seven sages. Uh, in ancient Egypt, at the Temple of Horus at Edfu, uh, they are also referred to as the seven sages. Uh, in ancient India, it's Manu and the seven, and the seven sages who appear after the flood, uh, trying to restore the knowledge that was lost during the time of the flood. These are indigenous traditions. Same story, different parts of the world. Same story, different parts of the world. That's one of the things that interests me about it. What interests me about about it least of all is the issue of skin color. What interests me about it most of all is the issue that there, there seems to be a memory of a cataclysm after which a group of people tried to preserve knowledge from is before the cataclysm. Is this the Snow White myth? <laughs> I'm not sure. She falls asleep, seven dwarfs, or the yeah. seven sages, yeah. they come wake her up with the wisdom of a guy should make out with you when you're passed out. I need to reread the Snow White myth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there might be something there. This is yeah, good. Yeah. Well. 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 No. Because because myths, you, you myths are the memory bank of our species. This is what I loved about the Netflix special: treating the myths as a way of passing on true information. Yes. And uh, yeah, and, and taking them seriously, not looking at them as figments of imagination. Yeah. If we were to pass on data and fact, it's way more digestible in the form of story. We memorize stories. If you wish to pass message, if you wish to pass information to a distant future, if you wish it to be preserved, you wouldn't be smart to just write it down. Mm. Uh, how can we know that our script is going to be readable by any other culture? Let's say 10,000 years in the future. Will anybody be able to read the English language? Who knows? I, 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 have, I have no idea. It's, fra it's fragile. Uh, an example I often give is the Indus Valley civilization in uh, Pakistan and India. Um, the, the Indus Valley civilization, nobody actually knew that it existed until it was accidentally discovered while a railway was built, being built through a site now called Mohenjo-Daro. Um, in Pakistan, and then they found that there were these actually very, very sophisticated, very complex mud, mud brick structures on a very large scale. Then they began to look at it. Then they found that this culture had had a language, a fully developed written script. It's about 5,000 years old, but there isn't a single Rosetta Stone that enables us to translate that script into any more recent language. So we can't read that script. The script exists, but we can't read it. So there could be all kinds of information in that script, which tells all kinds of things about our past, but it's not, but it's not readable. And how today. long ago were they thriving? Uh, 5,000 years ago. Wow. One of the interesting things in the Indus wow. Valley civilization is that there, there is a particular seal that has survived, a, a seal that would have been used to stamp an imprint onto cloth or something like that. It's called the, the Pasupati seal. And it shows a figure which is, which is recognizable as the god Shiva, uh, who is, of course, a, a, an important deity in, in Indian culture to this day and, and in the Vedas. Um, and, and it shows that individuals seated in a, yeah, there you are. That's the Pasupati seal. Well, what you'll see is that, is that underneath, it, the way his feet are organized is that his heels are pointed forwards. 
this is a really difficult yoga position to sit like that and have your heels pointed forward. You've got to kind of almost disjoint your legs in order to do that, okay? And the problem, the problem with that is that it's an advanced yoga position. It's found, it's found in a seal that's 5,000 years old. We have to ask ourselves how many thousands of years before, before that, that was yoga Holy being developed, shit. you know? Uh, uh, again, there's a hint of a lost human culture in this. The, uh, the, the posture is called Mulabandhasana. Um, and uh, I certainly can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable, because what do we date modern Indian civilization back to? Is it well, 5,000 years since ago? The Indus, it 4, yeah, since the discovery of the Indus Valley civilization, you know, we have, we have to accept that civilization in, in India is, is, is at least 5,000 years old. The, 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 the largely and correctly discredited notion of an Aryan invasion of India needs to be abandoned as well. Yes, there were multiple cultures moving, moving back and forwards, but Indian culture is extremely, extremely ancient. 5,000 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and Valley—that's like a thing you'll learn about in textbooks. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, you learn about it it's now. Like accept it, yeah. Uh, but 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 what most people don't realize was nobody knew it even. It was a lost civilization. And the language is completely independent. There's no connectivity to anything. Nobody else. can nobody can connect it to anything. Wow. We don't know. We don't know what it was. There's some there's some suggestion that it may have been Dravidian peoples, uh, the peoples who are now found in south, primarily in southern India, yeah. people the Tamils. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, my wife is, is, is Tamil. Gotcha. Um, yeah. and, and that's been very helpful to us when we've been researching in southern India. Uh, we did a lot of diving in southern... My wife is a photographer and, and a diver, as, mm. I, as I am, and we did a lot of diving in southern India. So it was, it was great to be able to talk, for her to be able to talk in their own language to Tamil fishermen and Tamil divers and see if they'd seen any weird stuff underwater, which they certainly had, and they took us to diving on, on structures that wow. uh, are a fully formed city off the, uh, off the town of Mahabalipuram. Now, you, you speak about this in the documentary, but I think this is really important to understand as well, that most of human civilization has been organized around water, right? Close yes. proximity to water, obviously you can fish, travel, etc. Mm -hmm. And as the water levels change, some of those ancient cities could be completely covered. Yes. You've recovered some of these, you've seen This is one people. of the things that I, think is, that I think is missing from our understanding of the past. Uh, it amused me, but also irritated me, that, that in that open letter to Netflix, the Society for American Archaeologists claimed that they could absolutely for certain be sure that there was no lost civilization during the Ice Age. They knew it was a fact. And if there had been any civilization, they would have found it right. and they would have published it. Right. Well, how do they know that there, how do they know that there was no lost civilization then? Because uh, it's really important to understand that archaeology um, is often driven by accidental finds. A lot of archaeology, particularly in the industrialized countries, is the result of somebody building, building uh, there's a huge building project going on. Maybe a housing state is going to be built. Yeah. Maybe a road is going to be built. Maybe a railway is going to be built. Uh, maybe a dam is going to be built. And then let's see, uh, let's call in the archaeologists to make sure that we're not going to wreck any ancient archaeology while we're doing this. And that's a lot of archaeological discoveries are made as a result of that right. rather than of targeted inquiries. Um, the second issue with ruling out completely the possibility of a lost civilization is that archaeology sets itself up as the sole arbiter as to what is and what is not evidence. So I and my colleagues argue that we should consider the possibility of a much older Great Sphinx, as we've just been discussing, uh, on, the, on the basis of its geology. I'm just going to add a more complicated point. It's not only the geology. The Great Sphinx points perfectly due east. 
the sunrise is perfectly due east on the spring equinox. If you go to the Giza Plateau or anywhere else in the world on the summer, northern hemisphere, on the summer solstice, you're going to see the sun rising far to the north of east. Go there on the winter solstice, you're going to see it far to the south of east. But on the spring equinox, it rises perfectly due east directly in line with the gaze of the Sphinx. The Sphinx is looking at where the sun rises at dawn on the 21st of March in our calendar. Now, because of this wobble on the Earth's axis. What is that called again, the wobble? It's called precession. Precession, yeah. Uh, imagine a spinning top, which is, yeah. which is spinning and, and, is doing, and is kind of doing this. Yeah. And that's the viewing platform from which we observe the stars and the sun and the moon and everything else. And obviously the changes in its orientation are gonna change their orientation. And that's why, why we get the, the um, astrological ages. Again, mainstream science sneers at these things, but it is a simple astronomical fact that there are 12 constellations that lie along the path of the sun, which is called the ecliptic. And they are the constellations of the zodiac. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now we live in the age of Pisces, very near the end of the age of Pisces. Um, it's um, a simple fact that the ancient Christians uh, go back about 2,000 years. Ah, the fish. They, yeah. The fish was their thing. Uh, before that, it was Aries, the ram. Uh, ancient Egyptian symbolism at that time was very much focused on, on rams. Uh, go back before that, it's the age of Taurus, roughly the, py the pyramid age. That's, when, that's, that's why if you were building a, a huge 270-foot-long rock-hewn monument in the pyramid age, you'd be more likely to make it in the form of a bull than, than in, the in the form of a, of a, of a lion. Yeah. Of a lion. Oh, because lion. there is a time when you go back, guess when, about 12,000 years, that you find it's the constellation of Leo that is rising behind the sun. That's the, that's the age of Leo. Just as we live in the age of Pisces, that was the age of Leo. And there was a time when that monument would have looked directly at the place where the sun rises. First, it would have seen its own celestial counterpart, the constellation of Leo, sitting on the horizon, and then the sun rising beneath it. So to, to us, this, uh, and I, I speak of myself, Robert Baval, Robert Schock, John Anthony West, and a few others, we think it makes more sense, take the geology, take the astronomy, this monument has its origins 12,000 years ago. Hmm. But Egyptologists say, no, we know the Sphinx was built 4,500 years ago. Uh, the, I'm not gonna bore your audience with the details, but the evidence is incredibly flimsy. There isn't a single document that attributes the Great Sphinx to Khafre, who is supposed to be the builder of the Great Sphinx. There's nothing, it's just opinion, pure opinion. Uh, and, and we think that, that they are not right to dismiss the case for a much older Sphinx uh, and, and to say that. So they, have the, they select what evidence is evidence and what evidence isn't evidence. Uh, that's the, the second thing. And then the third and final thing is the huge areas of the world that have never been looked at by archaeology at all. Or if looked at by archaeology, looked at only minimally. Um, of course, the most important are the flooded continental shelves. And that's why Santa and I spent seven years of our lives, frequently risking our lives, uh, scuba diving all around the world. Uh, the sea level rose 400 feet at the end of the last ice age. Let's be clear, it did not rise 400 feet overnight. Right. This was a rise that was extended over a period of 11 or 12,000 years from about 21,000 years ago down to 10,000. It was even still rising about 6,000 years ago. All over the world? All over feet? the world, yeah. There was a global, all the world's oceans are connected and all, all but, but in local areas, if you have a very steep coastline, the effect of the sea level rise, the amount of land it eats up is gonna be a lot less than if you have a gradually sloping coastline. Mm. And, and 120 feet level sea level rise on a very steep bit of coast is gonna remove relatively distant. less land, whereas on a very sloping bit of coast, uh, it's going to, it's going to uh, 
uh, inundate much more land. Mm -hmm. uh, and the calculation is that 27 million square kilometers that was above water during the Ice Age is underwater now. Hmm. Roughly, I think that's roughly 10 million square miles. I can't do the math in my head, but... Mm -hmm. Something like that. So it's an awful lot of land. I think it's Europe and China added together. Wow. Uh, there, it's, it's not that there's been no archaeology done on the continental shelves. I think we're looking at something from Alexandria here. Yes. Yeah, we are. We are. I've dived there as well. Um, and and that's, wow. um, that's inundated not because of sea level rise, but because of subsidence of the Nile silts. Uh, off the, the Alexandria stands on the Nile Delta, and the the silts subsided and resulted in what the are flooding the of this. Uh, the Nile carries a lot of silt with it, a lot of earth with it, as it flows out of Uganda and out of Ethiopia, and northwards into Egypt. And you come to the Nile Delta, and all that earth it's carrying, which also provided the fertility of ancient Egypt, all that silt is then dumped in the Nile Delta, and there were constructions were made on top of it. And those, that, the, the, the submergence of the sites off Alexandria, uh, which is a magical, spooky place to dive, by the way. I've been lucky enough to dive there. The submergence of those sites is largely because of subsidence of land rather than sea level rise, because it's relatively recent. Those, 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 so those if sites you're saying the old. silt itself has dropped. Yeah, yeah. Right, so anything it's built on solid ground. Yeah, anything built it. on top of it went down. Guys, I'm in different clothes. Why is that? Because we were able to add another special taping at White Oak Music Hall. I'm fighting to get everybody in. I appreciate the demand so much. So tickets are being released today, the day this comes out. 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. That's Texas time. So hurry up and buy the tickets, please. I appreciate the demand so much. I want to get everybody in that I can. Also, speaking of adding shows, we are adding shows at Zany's in Nashville, July 14th and 15th. The 13th is sold out. Uh, I believe I'm going to be in Huntsville on the 12th. Uh, also, I got a bunch more shows. Please check the website because tickets are selling out for these shows, and I don't have time. We got to get back to Graham Hancock. But thank you guys so much. AkashSing.com. Hurry up and cop. Also, guys, if you need tickets to a show that might happen to be sold out, uh, again, my special taping is an example, you know where you can find them? SeatGeek. Look at that. Akash Singh tickets. Oh, and what? what's even better is SeatGeek will tell you how good or bad a deal is. Whatever tickets you need. If you see a green dot next to the ticket price, that means it's good. You should buy it. Red means don't buy it yet. Hold off. Something is something better is coming. No other ticket app is doing this for you. SeatGeek is where it's at. There are 28 million downloads on SeatGeek. It's a number one rated ticket, ticketing app for a reason. And there are 70,000 events listed every single day. That includes concerts, sporting events, music festivals, and more. Also, if you need Andrew Schultz tickets, wherever you are on the globe, SeatGeek might be able to help you. Why don't you look at that? And just because we at Flagrant always come through for you, we got a code. Use Flagrant for $20 off tickets at SeatGeek. Again, that's $20 off your first purchase with the promo code Flagrant. Make sure you do that right now. Just download the SeatGeek app on your phone, Buy your first tickets, use a promo code flag, and you get 20 bucks off. Now let's get back to the show. Why is it a spooky place to die? Um, well, because you're coming across statues underwater, you're coming across columns underwater. It's, 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 the, the visibility is not perfect. It's a little bit kind of weird. Um, and, and it's just magical in di diving, yeah. diving on an underwater city. But I cannot claim, and I do not claim that that city is 12,000 years old. <laughs> no, it's not. But I do claim that in connection with a giant stone circle called uh, uh, of. of Akajima in the Kerama Islands in Japan, uh, which is 30 meters under sea level, uh, where there has been no land subsidence, where you can calculate that it's been underwater for 12,000 years. Um, I, I 
do absolutely claim that in terms of the, the enormous structures that lie off the coast of Mahabalipuram uh, in Tamil Nadu in southeast India. Um, Pumpahar, a little further south, there's a huge U-shaped structure underwater there uh, that Santha and I dived on with a team from the National Institute of Oceanography in India. There are, you have to be careful when you look at underwater structures. You have to look at all the conditions that have led to their submergence. And, and in some cases, it's very clear that they've been underwater for a very, very, very long time indeed. Hmm. Malta, uh, which we featured in the in, yeah. in Ancient Apocalypse. Wait, when, when you went to Malta, did you go? Malta's the one that's divided. There's like an active civil war going on, right? No, 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 not for a long time. No, but the, it's there's like a Lebanon. Turkish side and then a oh. Orthodox Christian side, and they're basically like a border that they just kind of built. No, not in. Am Malta. I not thinking Cyprus? Not in Malta. Oh, could, am I thinking about be, Cyprus? Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Okay, could be, could be Cyprus. Mal, okay. no, Malta. Malta's Malta is a wonderful tax haven and good place to shoot. <laughs> Malta's, Malta's okay. a piece. Malta, Malta's I a guess piece. It, it has Cyprus, been for a yeah. long time. But but Malta used to be joined to Sicily during the Ice Age. Malta wasn't an island; it was part of the mainland. Yeah. Mm. Part of toe of Italy, Sicily all the way out to Malta was all above water during right. the Ice Age and all underwater now. So one of my interests as a diver was, is what do we find underwater in Malta? Mm. And what you find strikingly underwater in Malta is a repetition of the so-called cart ruts that you find above water in Malta as well, which have never been properly- Cart ruts? Yes, they're, they're parallel tracks that are cut into the bedrock on the island of Malta. And they look actually like railway tracks. Yeah. Well, I'm not claiming they were a railway, but they look like, they look, that's just a comparison. And there are even junctions in them. Uh, and, and nobody knows what they are. They, the word cart ruts is what they're called, but the notion that they were cut, gradually cut out by carts being rolled over them doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It looks like they've been cut by hand, but more interesting is the fact that they continue underwater. Okay, yeah, yeah. And we've dived on those cart ruts down to 27 meters, which is what, 80, 90 feet maybe wow. un underwater. They've been underwater for thousands and thousands of years. And? So, so, the, so then the issue becomes, are we secure on the dating of all the structures above water on Malta? Mm. And, and I suggest strongly that we're not. Yeah. There's been very little, very little carbon dating done uh, on the Maltese temples. Um, and and uh, that carbon dating is itself uh, insecure. I'm, I'm doing a, a debate with a leading archaeologist uh, on the Joe Rogan experience on the 24th of October. Joe be having people oh, debate, huh? That's his yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very good thing that this is happening. It's the first time that somebody representing the alternative point of view is has actually been out, debated huh? by somebody from the mainstream. The mainstream has normally said, now we don't want to talk to you guys, you're, you, you, you yeah. know, you're Looney Tunes, we're not going to give you a platform. But in this case, it is, it is happening. And um, I have things to say about Malta that I'm going to preserve my ammunition oh, for. Nice. <laughs> Can okay. you give us a taste? Hmm? Can you give us a little taste? Uh, it's, it's to do with the absolute insecurity of the carbon dating. Okay. Oh, I see. Got it. Do you think there's any submerged pyramids? Um, just to finish that point, carbon dating, by the way, and again, this is not something that everybody knows. Carbon dating can only date organic material. Mm -hmm. It can't date um, stone. Stone, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so if you're going to date a megalith according to the organic material found around you, you want to be pretty sure that the organic material dates from the same time as the megalith and wasn't introduced later. Mm. Right. And so. there's no way in proving that it is or it well, isn't, Well, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult to do. And the fact is there, there are very few carbon dates from Malta and the new dating work that's been done there hasn't added usefully to that database. Mm. And when are you doing this on uh, Joe's pod? So 24th of October. Um, and uh, the, the archeologist who's going to debate me is called Flint Dibble. Um, he's American, uh, 
but he teaches at the University of Cardiff in Wales, in Britain. His father was a famous archaeologist called Harold Dibble. Um, and uh, Flint, Flint has been very um, pointed and aggressive in his attacks on me following the Netflix show, which he has every right to be. Um, I had wanted to debate another archaeologist who's called John Hoops from the University of Kansas because he has been by far the most obnoxious in these leveling these ad hominem attacks against me mm. and and straw men attacks like Hancock says this Hancock says that when Hancock doesn't say either this or that mm. you know but if you again if you say it enough uh, it begins to have an effect and I, I would have liked to have brought uh, called John Hoops to account um, and and uh, invited him to debate me but unfortunately he backed out and he wouldn't he wouldn't do it Flint Dibble and this is genuine Flint Dibble has had some health issues I won't go into the details um, and we've not been certain until very recently whether he will be able to make it and, but kudos to him. It looks like he is going to make it. Great. And what he's doing and what I'm doing on the 24th of October is we're both putting our reputations on the line. Oh, this, is a, this is a pay-per-view event. This is a high stakes. This is a high stakes issue for both me and him yes. because you know anything can happen in a debate. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I certainly intend to make sure that I'm properly prepared. I'm yeah. sure he's going to make sure he's properly prepared. I hope we can end up hugging each other and and finding some common ground yes. rather, yeah, rather than all of this hatred. You know? yeah. Okay. Now, sorry. There's one question. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but you. As society got more advanced in this time, yeah. it seems we have less and less dependence on astronomy. Astronomy, yeah. when I'm thinking 4,000, five years ago to now, it just kind of filled in the blanks of what we couldn't figure out on our own. Mm -hmm. So 12,000 years ago, if there's a really advanced civilization, why would astronomy play as big of a role in them where everything is pointing to X, Y, and Z stars? Well, first of all, let's, con let's consider what we mean by advanced. What is, it, what is an advanced civilization? Are we really an advanced civilization? Is there, do, do we look around at much of our culture that we would say, that's incredibly advanced? Or are we talking tech? Are we talking tech? We're, we're technologically And like advanced. scientifically, yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we believe that that is advanced. And, and that is one of the mistakes in looking for a quote-unquote advanced civilization in the past is that we tend to be looking for ourselves in our mm. past. Whereas it's possible for a civilization to be advanced in other ways. We could not um, measure longitude very important issue if you're a navigator and a, and a sailor. Uh, we could not measure longitude until 1760s, 1750s, sometime in the second half of the 18th century. It took uh, the creation of a very precise marine chronometer in order to be able to calculate what your longitude is. Otherwise, in the middle of a stormy night, you could find yourself 300 miles west of where you thought you were and crashing into a coastline. Hmm. Um, it's a really good thing to know longitude. There was, a, I mean, a million pounds in the 18th century was a lot of money. There was a million British pounds prize for cracking the longitude problem. Uh, and it wasn't until the, the second half of the 18th century that it was solved. Wow. So it's weird that on ancient maps copied from even more ancient source maps, <laughs> there are precise longitudes, precise <laughs> yeah. relative longitudes. This is one of the things that, that suggests to me that uh, that a civilized, uh, the second thing is those maps show the world as it looked during the last ice age. Thirdly, and most important, they show Antarctica. Our civilization didn't discover Antarctica until 1820. So if I find a map from 1520 showing Antarctica where the map maker informs us that he based his map on much older source maps that were falling to pieces and that he know that, that, that will fall completely apart, he's 
preserved the information in those maps on his map. He's copying from older, and there is Antarctica. So did they just make it up? That's what the that's Why what the Why do we still call it Antarctica? That was another thing I was like. Well, the opposite of the Arctic. Yeah, but it's, I just, if we, it's that like. Reese map. The, the, it's like, bro, he called it Antarctica. Why don't you just look at the map? You're going to call it the same, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, we call it Antarctica. They used to call it Terra Australis, the southern land. Um, if you go for the Arontius Phineas map, for example, mm. um, you'll find a much better, uh, a much better reference. Yeah, I thought that map said Antarctica. That's very good. Yeah. Tripped up. Oh, I actually am really excited that we're talking about Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. Antarctica is an interesting. This place. is my newest rabbit. It's one hole. of those. It's one of those great. You see, there's Antarctica. That's the Orontes Finis. The right. There's there's South uh, South Africa and uh, and there's Antarctica and there's the tip of South America, almost touching Antarctica. Mm. It's a bit bigger than it is today, but it would have been like that during the last ice age. That's a map from 1531, and 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 what they're saying in the legend is that here in this map I expose regions that no, neither the Eudoxus, nor I forget the, the names of all the ancient maps. None of them knew about it. They were hidden in darkness, but here they are. Um, hidden in darkness, I suggest they're hidden in darkness on, on um, ancient maps that Orontius Phineas copied from. Wow. Uh, the very, the, it's, a, it's an anomaly that it's sitting there. Uh, and and w it's not good enough to say that those map makers just wanted to balance the world so they put a fantasy continent there, which later turned out to actually be there. Right. That's roughly what they're, what they're saying now. So so uh, that suggests to me a culture that was capable of exploring and mapping the Earth during the last ice age. Mm. The second issue uh, is precisely astronomy. It's ancient knowledge of precession, uh, which again, our culture attributes to the Greeks roughly between 300 BC and 100 BC. They're supposed to have been the, the discoverers of um, precession. Um, precession is very hard to observe. It's a, it, in a single lifetime, it's a fraction of an inch on the horizon, the, the, the change. So you have to keep records over long periods of time. You have to have a system that preserves those records and passes them down. So it's the, it's, it's the knowledge of precession that is manifested in, in ancient mythology uh, and in ancient traditions, often traditions that speak of a global flood. Um, the Vedas themselves uh, contain numbers that are related to that are related to precession. Again, I don't want to get too boring, but but precession proceeds at the rate of one degree every seventy-two years, and this is the key number that is found in ancient mythology around the world and variations of that number. So 72 plus 36 is 108. 108 is another processional number. 108 divided by two is 54. That's another processional number. That's why on the bridge at Angkor Thom in uh, Angkor in Cambodia, you have 54 figures on either side of the bridge. And what are they doing? They're hauling on the body of the serpent Vazuki who is wrapped around Mount Mandera and they are churning the milky ocean. The argument is that this is a symbol for precession, for precession. That, is, that is taking place there. And the numbers are, are, are multiplied. And another example I often give is the Great Pyramid itself. And it's very important, I made this point at the beginning, it's very important that when people want to check this calculation, that they use the true original height of the Great Pyramid, the 481 feet that it would have risen to, rather than its rather stunted 450 plus feet today. When you use the true original height of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, you get the polar radius of the Earth. And when you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, 
you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, why does 43,200 matter? It's 600 times 72. It's another precessional number. It's a number generated by the precessional motion of the Earth itself. And there we enter a very, a very clever piece of work. Great Pyramid is almost perfectly aligned to true north. It's within three sixtieths of a single degree of true north. It's, it's an error, but it's really good. When you look at a monument on that scale, six million tons, 481 <laughs> feet tall, uh, you know, and you get it within three sixtieths of a degree of, of true north, you are uh, doing very accurate work. And you were saying something else. You think they you? figured that out back in the day? Oh, yeah, definitely. You think definitely. they were like, it used astronomy. Fuck. They used astronomy to figure it out. And, and but no, that they messed up a little. Um, <laughs> I think they did the best they could. I think they did the best they could. We also have to take account of, of movements of the Earth itself. They may oh, have, so it might have been right at the time. It might have been, there might have been a slight shift in the tectonic plates underneath. I'm not sure, but, but the fact is it's 360 off now. Okay. Um, what it does tell us, apart from the, the, the level of accuracy, is that when they made that monument, they wanted to lock it in to the, to the key cardinal directions. It's perfectly true north, perfectly true south, perfectly true east, perfectly true west, within 360 of a single degree. Then, the cardinal directions of this planet mattered to them. They were um, speaking to the Earth with that monument. Secondly, it's located on latitude 30 degrees north, give or take a, 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 a few seconds of arc. And latitude 30 degrees north is one third of the way between the equator and the North Pole. Okay, so that's not an insignificant latitude. It's a significant latitude. It seems like the monument is speaking to the Earth. And then we find that it encodes the dimensions of the Earth on a scale provided by a key motion of the Earth itself, namely the Earth's precession, operating at the rate of one degree every 72 years. Multiply that by 600, you get 43,200. That's the scale the pyramid is built on, one to 43,200. So it's a monument that speaks to the Earth, that uh, is aligned to the cardinal directions of the Earth, and that encodes the dimensions of the Earth on a scale defined by the Earth itself. And nobody would object to this at all? Uh, nobody, nobody that I know of, once they get the measurements right and realize that they're not dealing with a 450-foot tall monument, but a 481-foot tall, yeah. tall monument. Nobody, nobody disputes that. The pi, the, 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 which is used to calculate the diameter of, uh, and circumference of a circle, is built into the Great Pyramid. This is broadly accepted by Egyptologists. It's just that they regard it as a coincidence. And your theory is also that the ancient Egyptians did this, right? Because you said they did most of the work. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 I think they did. I think it was, I think it was finished off. You, you define the very moment you start building that 52 degree slope into all the sides, you're defining what the apex mm, is going to be. Right. That's, that's, there from, that's there from the beginning. And what was their daily ritual use for the pyramids of Giza that you theorize? Well, um, actually nobody has any idea. Um, the Great Pyramid was sealed. It was a sealed monument. So in roughly 900 AD, uh, forgive me if I don't give you the exact date, give or take 50 years, the Caliph al-Mamun, um, who was running Egypt at the time, wanted to get inside the Great Pyramid. This is 400 years before the earthquake. The facing stones are still in place. Um, he could not find the true entrance to the Great Pyramid. Uh, it turned out that it could have been found there was, there was it, 
according to accounts, there was some sort of almost like a button that you pressed, and the and the doorway would would slide, the facing stones would slide away, mm. and you could find the two entrances. But he couldn't find that. So, but he did know that other pyramids had their entrance in the north face, other older pyramids like the Pyramid of Unas. He he knew they had their entrance in the north face. So he started hacking away at the north face of the Great Pyramid, um, and that is the entrance through which you will have gone when you entered the Great Pyramid. It's called. Mamoon's hole. Um, he and his team hacked it out with sledgehammers and chisels and they broke their way in to the north face. And then as they were doing so, they heard a block falling in a hollow space. And then they knew they were onto something. That block that fell caused by the vibrations that they had caused must have been in some kind of passageway or chamber. So they headed towards that sound and that's where they found the, the original passageway system of the Great Pyramid, which after you've gone through Mamun's Hole, gone around a little corner where it's all cut out of the rock, and then you find yourself going up into the, first of all, the ascending corridor and then the Grand Gallery, yeah. uh, which is the most majestic structure. Um, they, they found the, the original entrance system in that way. And now the true original entrance is open, right. uh, but it's not used by, by tourists who yeah. enter the Great Pyramid. Okay, I, I want to talk about Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is going to be the new obsession. I feel like it's trending super high. Mm -hmm. Who knows if there's any truth to it. But a friend of ours, who will remain nameless, went there. Yeah. Got to go on a cool experience trip, etc. Mm -hmm. And he said a couple interesting things. He said uh, the mountains looked eerily pointy and four-sided. Mm -hmm. uh, he said way more mountainous than he thought it would be. Mm -hmm. I think the illusion made from looking at maps and watching penguins is By the way, you can see flat. mountains. You can see mountains on the Orontius Phineas map version. Of oh, it. is that what the little edges are? Around the edges there. Interesting. Those are mountains. Now, he also said this. He said a couple things. He said there is a pact with every country that has a slice of it that they will not dig or remove any minerals from Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And he even said that a scientist was there said to them, World War III will not start until one of these countries breaks that pact. Mm -hmm. They are clearly protecting or preserving something mm -hmm. that may or may not be under, I believe it's three miles, Mark was saying earlier, at its thickest of ice. Mm -hmm. Now, Mark, maybe you should describe the thing that you were saying before about there was a time where yeah, Antarctica- Yeah, I was reading an article that perhaps 90 million years ago, there was a lush rainforest that is now covered in miles of ice yeah. on the Antarctic continent. Yeah, that, that's probably true. If you go, if you go back that far, uh, you would find that um, the Earth's climate was very different from, from how it is today. And there's, no, there's undoubtedly a time, they found fossils on Antarctica, there's undoubtedly a time when, when Antarctica was, was lush and green. The question is, was it lush and green during the lifetime of the human species? Yes, this um, is where it gets tricky. And, and this, is where, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, our, the, 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 the Homo sapiens line descends from a line that goes back about six million years, not much further than that, if we accept conventional evolutionary theory. So six million years ago, Antarctica is supposed to have been as cold and as frozen as it is today. Now, when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995, which is, which is my first book tracing the possibility of a lost civilization, I was very interested in Antarctica. And I was interested in it because of the work of a previous researcher called Charles Hapgood. Charles Hapgood 
wrote a number of very important books. One of them is called Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, which precisely goes into this issue of ancient maps that don't fit our understanding of what the world was, how the world was supposed to be known at that time. Um, and another is called The Path of the Pole. And he uh, proposed a phenomenon that he called Earth Crust Displacement, whereby from time to time, the entire outer crust of the Earth, like the skin of an orange, might shift leaving the core of the earth in place so that it could shit like so if you imagine a very loose orange skin the fruit is inside it's staying in place but you're shifting the skin around it well obviously then if that happens antarctica oh. could have been in warmer latitudes and could have been shifted into colder latitudes and how often does this happen well does it happen at all is the is the right. first question i mean of, of, of all the the theories i've looked at and supported this is this is the one that i've come in for the for the most criticism for mm. um and i've been much more interested recently in the younger dryas impact hypothesis and the notion that the, the uh, that a cataclysm occurred around twelve thousand eight hundred years ago caused by impacts of comet fragments and we can go into that um, but when i wrote fingerprints of the gods although i was interested in comets i was more interested in earth crust displacement um, and and the the standard academic response to that is look antarctica has been frozen for millions of years um, and that rules out the whole earth crust displacement argument um, i think that even those who are still researching this field would prefer it to be the mantle rather than the crust of the earth that moves again it's very technical that moves in one piece um, there's a but the idea there's is an Italian admiral called Flavio Barbiero who who wrote an article for my website suggesting that earth crust displacement could be kicked off by a comet impact which hits a, hits the earth a glancing blow mm. and and causes a, a shift of this kind taking mm. place but by and large I don't I don't argue these days that uh, that Antarctica and earth crust displacement are the mechanism we should be looking at I'm more I'm much more interested in the very solidly scientifically grounded Younger Dryas impact. Back, to, back in 1995, when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, I was searching around for many possibilities that could have caused a global cataclysm in the range of 12 to 13,000 years ago, because that's what all the astronomy pointed out, 12 to 13,000 years ago. And Hapgood's theory uh, seemed to me a very valuable and useful one. I still won't write it off. I won't dismiss it entirely. But I've shifted in the direction of um, uh, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, simply because I'm in a constant argument with mainstream academia. Mm. And the issue to me, the most important issue to me, uh, is the issue of a global cataclysm at the end of the Ice Age. What, what caused that cataclysm is a secondary issue. The mm. cataclysm itself is the primary issue. And I've found found the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis uh, a better, much more scientifically grounded explanation for that cataclysm uh, than the notion of earth crust displacement. But do any archaeologists or any of these uh, prehistorians dispute the Younger Dryas there, there's a, there's still a lot of argument around it. There's, there's about 60 major scientists um, who are involved in the Comet Research Group. They're all credentialed scientists. They've all published dozens of papers in peer-reviewed journals, including Nature, including Scientific Reports, and many, many others on the, on the hypothesis. But there's also a group of academics who, who are opposed to it. 
and, and uh, dispute that any impact ever took place. And then even in those who, who, who do accept that the Younger Dryas was a cataclysm, some think that it may have been caused by solar activity rather than by, by comet impact. How would that work? Well, it would certainly, it could work um, at the end of the Younger Dryas. There are two moments in the Younger Dryas. The beginning is 12,800 years ago. It's a very strange moment in Earth history. This is when... Um, this is, this is when the world's climate, which has been warming up for a few thousand years, the Ice Age is still very much present, have big ice caps on North America, big ice caps on Northern Europe, um, but it's been warming up gradually. And then 12,800 years ago, two things happened at once. First, a sudden cataclysmic drop in climate. The cold, it gets incredibly cold. Uh, as cold as it was at the peak of the Ice Age more than 20,000 years ago. It gets incredibly cold, but then puzzlingly, there's a release of water into the world ocean. I say puzzlingly because when the Earth is freezing, you would not expect meltwater to be going into the world ocean. It should be staying on the ice caps. And I cite the work of Cesare Miliani and his work on the submergence of Bahamian corals. This is how, how do you know that sea level rose? There are certain corals that can only exist within a certain number of feet of the, of the sea's surface. Because they need the sunlight. Yeah, to the, and when they drown, yeah. that tells you the sea level has, has risen. And they point to a significant sea level rise 12,800 years ago at exactly the moment of this deep freeze. The comet impact hypothesis explains that because it says that the, the shock at the heat of the impact of large fragments of a comet on the North American and European ice caps would have been sufficient to release that freezing water into the world ocean, to cut the Gulf Stream. That's the central heating system of our planet. It's called the global meridional overturning circulation. It's these currents of warm and cold water that flow around the planet, and yeah. they, the, the Gulf Stream was cut, and the Earth got extremely cold. So. I think the comet impact hypothesis does best explain that. But so just real quick, so comet hits, yeah. cuts the Gulf Stream, mm -hmm. cutting the Gulf Stream It causes... cuts the Gulf Stream because it releases a huge quantity of meltwater from the North American ice cap almost instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So the comet hits the ice yeah. that is in North America. Yeah, and Europe. And Europe, mm -hmm. that water cuts the Gulf Stream yes. because it releases all this, which was frozen freezing water. Freezing water gotcha, goes gotcha. into the world ocean. And temperature plummets. Temperature plummets. But at the same time, there's much more potential water in the oceans so that when the temperature does rise, now you have that meltwater. Well, no, so no, now we need to go on. 12,800 years ago, in the 1,000 or 1,200 years after that, that's a window when all the great Ice Age megafauna go extinct. That's megafauna are? Saber-toothed tigers, right. woolly mammoths, mastodons, right. giant sloths, the whole collection yep. of, of famous Ice Age megafauna, they all go extinct in that window. Hmm. Um, and, and clearly, they didn't go extinct for no reason. There's the cataclysm of the Younger Dryas that have, made the mix. Have you seen the, oh God, what is the gentleman's name? He's a guy who I believe like excavates up in Alaska for gold. I'm pretty sure it is, I'm forgetting what it is right now. But um, there are like images of woolly mammoths mm. who have been, had like their legs completely shattered, mm -hmm. but they're intact. Yeah, and is this a boneyard that's been Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, that, that, that's very, very, very interesting. I've not been there, I've not looked into it yet, so I can't speak authoritatively about it. But it might speak to your opinion right there. Like, what, what I can say is that at Serrania de Lindosa in Colombia, there is an eight kilometer long rock art panel dated to 12,800 years ago, which shows these megafauna. 
it shows it shows many of the extinct megafauna from that from that from that period. Um, to get back to the point, uh, so we have this window of about 1,200 years where the Earth is very cold. The megafauna go extinct, but then 11,600 years ago, just as fast and dramatically as the Earth went cold, the Earth goes warm. You're looking okay. at a 10 degree rise in global temperatures in, in a couple of hundred years. It goes very, very, in geological terms, very rapid and very fast. And, that, and sea level rises very quickly. And what is the cause 11, of that? 11,600 years ago, it's, it's called meltwater pulse 1B. There's another collapse of the ice sheets and huge amounts of water go into the world ocean. Now that, that could realistically be caused by a sudden burst of solar activity, which melted down those ice sheets. But that's not what I go with. I, I, I still prefer the notion that we're dealing with multiple bombardments from comet fragments. And in this case, you're looking at a comet fragment that goes into a world ocean, uh, that sends up a huge amount of water vapor into the upper atmosphere, creates a greenhouse effect, and accounts for the warming that takes place at that time. So two comets. One that cooled things down and one that heated things up? Yeah, yeah. Any idea why one would cool down and one would heat up? It uh, depends where the impact is. If the impact's on an ice cap and it's releasing enormous amounts of meltwater into the world ocean, you're going to make the world very cold. Okay. If the impact's in a world ocean and it's put, putting a huge amount of water vapor into the upper atmosphere, it's Got a greenhouse it. effect. Got and it. the world is going to get warmer. It's all theory. Mm -hmm. It's not fact. All, what is fact is the sudden warming at the end of the Younger Dryas and the sudden freezing at the beginning of the Younger Dryas. So we're searching for explanations for that. We're That's searching for explanations. I've, I've picked pick the one I, I back, but uh, I'm not claiming that I have to be right. It's uh, the, what I do think is really important is recognizing this was a global cataclysm. It was sustained. It wasn't just a minute. It went on for a thousand years plus, uh, and it's in our backyard. It's in very relatively recent human history. We're almost at the edge of history when we go to 11,600 years ago. That's Weirdly, the date that Gobekli Tepe in Turkey is built, 11,600 years ago. <laughs> that, weirdly, is the date that Plato's Timaeus and Critias gives for the submergence of Atlantis, 11,600 years ago, be before our time. So what's <laughs> happening to humanity in this 1,200-year window? I need, to be, I need to be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the, because archaeologists roll their eyes at any mention of Atlantis. If you even say the word Atlantis, <laughs> right. you're automatically regarded as a member of the lunatic fringe. Okay. Um, uh, and, and if you've even said that word, all your work, all the 30 years of work <laughs> right. you've done, the thousand dives that you've done yeah, on yeah. continental shelves all around the world, yeah. all of those can be written off simply because you said the word Atlantis. It's, so. it's flat earth for archaeologists. Yeah, it's flat, oh, it's yeah. flat yeah. earth. Gotcha. And, and they, they detest the use now of Now tell us why the earth is flat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one theory I definitely don't buy into. No, 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 give us yeah. the Atlantis theory. So, so the, the story of Atlantis comes down to us from Plato. It's expressed in two dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias. Okay. Plato was writing at around 300 BC. Uh, Does it come from his uncle? Yeah, it come, well, it, it, it's arguably from a member of his family line, who was the Greek lawmaker Solon. Solon, yeah, yeah. Who did make a famous and documented Egypt, visit to Egypt around the year 600 BC. And he was told in Egypt. And he was at the Temple of Neith at Sais in the Delta, and there are these inscriptions on the walls. That temple no longer exists. It's a ruin in the delta now. There are these writings on the walls. And he asks a priest, what do the writings say? And the priest spoke Greek and ancient Egyptian. And he told Solon what the writings say, that there was this great civilization, that it was destroyed in an enormous flood. Plato or Solon 
refers to it as Atlantis. Atlantis is not an ancient Egyptian word. It looks like some attempt to, to translate into a Greek, meaningful Greek phrase what was originally an, an ancient Egyptian phrase. And that ancient Egyptian phrase, uh, I can tell you pretty much for sure, was the homeland of the primeval ones. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but the, the point is that then, play, then Solon asks, when did this happen? And the priests say, they're very relaxed about it. They say, oh, 9,000 years ago. So immediately we have a date that we can put to our calendar. 600 BC, he makes the visit. 9,000 years before that, that's 9,600 BC. Give or take 23 years, that is 11,600 years ago. That's when Gobekli Tepe is built. That's when meltwater plus 1B begins to flood the world oceans. And again, my critics will, will, will niggle away at the edges of this and say, well, meltwater pulse 1B unfolded over three or 400 years. If you average it out, it wasn't that much in any one year. But who says it? happened at average rates. Who says there wasn't a big rise and then a smaller rise? You yeah. know? These, these, these things are very annoying. Um, but the bottom line is 9,000 years before Solon is 9,600 BC. That's the Atlantis date. That's Gobekli Tepe's date. Um, and then secondly, the Temple of Horus at Edfu in Upper Egypt is very important. There's been, I worked with a partial translation. Edfu is? It was in, in Upper Egypt. It's, it's sort of halfway uh, to, to, to Aswan uh, in Southern Egypt. It's, it's kind of middle. middle Aswan th- is the quarry, I believe, where they Aswan got Aswan's the quarry of- where they got a lot of the granite that they right. brought. It's about 500 kilometers south, but Edfu's a bit further north than that. Um, but it's also, on, it's also on the Nile. Now, the Temple of Horus at Edfu is a relatively recent temple, probably built around 270 BC by the Ptolemaic dynasty of ancient Egypt. Who, these were Greeks who had overtaken ancient Egypt. But although they colonized ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt colonized their mines, and they became ancient Egyptian. Egyptians, more ancient Egyptian than the ancient Egyptians themselves yes. in, many, in many ways. It's like when white people go to Hawaii. <laughs> All right, guys, we're gonna take a break real quick because you need to upgrade your room. If you still got posters hanging up in your room, that shit looks childish and you have to upgrade. That's where Displate comes in. Displate is a one-of-a-kind metal poster that captures your unique passions. They are sturdy, magnet-mounted, and last a lifetime. You can customize, collect, rearrange them all. Displate has both branded and artistic work. They have over one million designs available. They got official designs from Marvel, DC, both, that's crazy, and the NBA. So whether you want to buy a displate for yourself or gift a displate, they have a Floyd Mayweather. I happen to be very good friends, brothers you could even say, with a massive Floyd Mayweather fan. They also have a Guardians of the Galaxy one. That same friend loves Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I could get them a displate. Displate is unique, easy. It's safe and magnet mounted, so it takes 20 seconds. You don't gotta drill holes in a wall and then pay for it when you move out of your apartment or make your home look bad. Magnet mounted in 20 seconds. Displate delivers its products worldwide in only four to five business days as well. So it's a perfect alternative and really not alternative upgrade for standard posters. To upgrade your room, go to displate.com slash flagrant and use our code flagrant at checkout to get 20% off for one or two displates. 30% off if you buy three or more. So the more you buy, the more you save. Go to displate.com slash flagrant. Again, that's D-I-S-P-L-A-T-E dot com slash flagrant right now. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're gonna take a break real quick because if you're drinking, 
you might as well drink an adult beverage that's better for you, not some can of beer filled with a bunch of bullshit ingredients you've never heard of, or some cheap ass vodka that's gonna make your hangover crazy and make your life worse. You need June Shine. They have tons of easy to drink, to go, better for you adult beverage options. They got margaritas, vodka sodas, rum cocktails made with premium green ingredients and no added sugar unlike traditional canned cocktails that can have 20 plus grams of sugar. Again, I don't drink, but if you're gonna drink, drink something that is better for you. Got less sugar, got less carbs, not bullshit ingredients, and best of all, it doesn't give you that crazy, I just had a lot of sugar hangover. You give you a nice, light, bright buzz. Juice Shine can be found in over 10,000 stores across the country. It's available at all the big retailers you're already visiting for groceries and alcohol. Whole Foods, Target, Ralph's, Vaughn's, BevMo, Kroger, all of them. We've worked out a special offer for our listeners as well, as we always do. At any store, you can buy one June Shine package and get the second one for only a penny. That's $12 to $20 off. Fuck that, though. The value dollar amount don't matter. You get two for the price of one. I recommend trying one of their best-selling variety packs. It's a great way to try all their delicious flavors. So to do that, you go to juneshine.com flagrant and text them a photo of your receipt, and they will Venmo you immediately. That's immediate. Venmo's right in your bank account. You don't gotta wait for a mail and rebate that you're gonna lose. None of that. Right in your bank account. Just do it. It's that easy. J-U-N-E-S-H-I-N-E dot com slash flagrant. Now let's get back to the show. Inscribed on the wall of that temple, not in the language of ancient Egypt as was spoken 270 BC, but in Middle Egyptian, which goes back to about 2000 BC, carefully inscribed, and we're informed that it's based on temple archives. See that a temple stood there before the Ptolemies rebuilt that temple. And it stood on the foundations of an even older temple. The archives were preserved. That's what's inscribed on the walls. It's inscribed in Middle Egyptian. It's about 2000 BC. And uh, it speaks of, it tells the whole Atlantis story. It just doesn't call it Atlantis. It speaks of a sacred island. Uh, it calls it the homeland of the primeval ones. It speaks of a great serpent that comes from the sky and splits the island in two. It speaks of a huge flood that arises and kills off almost the, all the divine inhabitants, apart from a few survivors who then travel around the world. One of the places they go to is Egypt and they make their first business to build primeval mounds uh, in ancient Egypt that will be the places, the locations of all future temples and pyramids. The Edfu texts okay. are very clear. Now, I, I just need to make this clear because I relied on Eve Elizabeth Raymond, uh, who was an early translator of the Edfu texts. In, okay. in, but recently, the Edfu texts have been completely translated, every single word, into German uh, by, by a, a gentleman called Dieter Kurth. Okay. And, and, and they've translated it all into German. It would be nice if it were all into English because that's yeah. much more widely spoken What language. does it say in German? The well, Jews what did it say, not what it build says the in <laughs> no, it, it supports everything in the original translation. There's, no, oh, okay. there's not a single part of the original translation that's debunked by this. It supports it and it adds information that wasn't there because their reference in those Edfu texts to the destruction of the homeland of the primeval ones is 7,000 years ago, but that's in Middle Egyptian, which dates back to 2000 BC. So it goes back to 9,000 BC again. And 9,000 BC is 11,000. Yeah, it brings, us, it brings us to the same date. So I, I think that Egyptologists have been too hasty to dismiss Plato's real, story. Real quick, so we can just understand yeah. what was said. The, the snake that comes down, like you said in the Netflix special, we can look at comets as yes. potentially snakes. That are yeah. So this comet that comes and hits the island of Atlantis, that's a, like a direct shot, yes. right? Yeah. But, so maybe it doesn't hit exactly the island, but it's hitting close enough where the effects of that hit are gonna dramatically, dramatically felt, yeah. affect the island. 
Um, and remember, they didn't call it Atlantis. They called it the homeland of the primeval. Ones. And what does that mean, the primeval ones? The ancient ones lived there. That was their that was their homeland. Whoever, that created the mounds. Uh, who who then their survivors, who included seven sages, traveled around the world seeking to rebuild their lost civilization. And we've heard this. And Egypt was one of the places they went to. Okay, now. Some people say the Azores Plateau might be Atlantis. Have you ever been there? And maybe we can describe really quickly where that is. Well, it's in the Mid-Atlantic um, and on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge is interesting because, because there's, a, there's a phenomenon called isostasy. Uh, isostasy is the, the Earth's surface is a little bit fluid. If you, put a, if you put a heavy weight on one bit of it, it's like the end of a seesaw. It's going to force the other bit up. Mm. So in Britain... Um, we had an ice cap on northern Scotland. But right now, the Isle of Wight in the English Channel, far to the south, is sinking beneath, beneath, the, beneath the ocean. Why is that? Because the ice cap on northern Scotland pushed northern Scotland down oh, yeah, and yeah. lifted up the Isle of Wight. Yeah. Since the ice cap's gone, the Isle of Wight is going back underwater. You see this okay. in the islands off of Italy, like Capri yeah. is starting to shift and yes. rotate a little bit. It's, yeah. it's, it's isostasy that causes that. Okay. And, and isostatic rebound in this case. And, and there is some indication that the ice cap on North America may have had effect, an effect on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and may have raised it to a higher level than it was today. Oh, so, wait a minute. But I'm not, the, I, I, I need okay. to be clear. I'm not looking for Atlantis there right. or anywhere. I don't think there was one location. Every, every, every story and reference, and I don't think we should be looking for a genetic location for it either. Right. Just as, just as it would be really hard to look for a genetic location of America today, the US, US culture is a multicultural society. Right. There's a the multi-ethnicity society. I right. suspect quote unquote Atlantis was like that. I suspect that it was all over the world, that it used, that it, that it gotcha. occupied the best land, real estate on earth. The, the lands that are now under a few hundred feet of water yeah. uh, caused by- But if we knew where it was, we could at least look for some sort of remains. If there, were a, if, the, if, if there was a definite heartland for it, I think we should be looking for those remains on the flooded continental shelves all around the world. Mm. And that's what I spent seven years of my life doing, mm. uh, was, was diving on the continental shelves and finding again and again ruins and structures that weren't supposed to be there. Mm. I think there's the whole story of humanity that's, that's missing uh, underwater. And I would, while I'm saying that, I, I, I would like to give credit to archaeologists. There is some work now being done marine archaeology, which isn't any longer just looking for shipwrecks from the medieval period or even from the 20th century, but 19th century, but, but, ship, but, but are looking at the flooded continental shelves. And it's just starting. This, this work should have been happening for decades. It's just beginning. Uh, I think that's going to reveal a, a, a great deal. And I know it's going to reveal a great okay. deal because I found a great deal. But I want to add that the Amazon rainforest and the Sahara Desert are also underserved by archaeology. Yes. Uh, and we can't claim that there was no lost civilization of the Ice Age while there's so much of the world we never looked at at all. Especially the Sahara Desert, right? Because there could be thousands of pyramids just covered in mounds of sand yeah, right yeah, now. They really could. They're, we are finding a lot in the Amazon. Yes. Yeah, the, the LIDAR in the Amazon. Is the LIDAR awesome. work in the Amazon is, is fascinating. Okay, I, I, wanna, I hope to be back in the Amazon within the next few months. Okay, I want to, while we're talking about Amazon, uh, ayahuasca. Yes. Psychedelics. Yeah, I'm into yes. this. Let's okay. Do you, psychedelics. Yes. <laughs> and how they tie into 
These myths. And, These myths yeah. in ancient civilization and potentially using the knowledge or experience gained from these psychedelic drugs to maybe build these huge megalithic structures. Yeah. Um, how big a role do you think psychedelics have played in prehistory? Well, it's one of the reasons why we should never look for ourselves in the past because we've had the horrific, vicious, evil thing called the war on drugs for the past 50 plus years, which is gradually going away, thank God, mm. you know, but we've, we're a culture that's hated psychedelics since the time of Richard Nixon. And, and um, we, we kind of just assume that every culture in antiquity also hated psychedelics. No, they didn't. They were deeply involved with, with psychedelics, whether you're talking about the Eleusinian mysteries in, in ancient Greece. Uh, What's or, that? Uh, it was a, as a temple, the temple of Eleusis. It stands just outside of Athens in Greece, what's left of it. Um, they served up a potion to all the initiates. And the initiates included Sophocles, Pindar, Plato himself, all the great minds of ancient, uh, ancient world went to Eleusis. They were given this brew, which was called the Kaikion. Uh, then they went down into these deep chambers underneath the temple of Eleusis. And then they had extraordinary experiences, which gave them revelations about the nature of reality. They ceased to fear death. Mm. They knew that they would not, they knew that death was not the end. They had no fear of death anymore uh, after they'd had this experience. Sounds a lot like a psychedelic experience. And then we have, we have the work that's been done on that brew. And that brew was made, we're told it was made from barley, mint, and water. But what grows on barley is Claviceps paspali, which is an LSD-like uh, fungus. <laughs> I love it. Ergot, I love it. <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is soluble in water. There, is, there, are, ergot, there are ergots that are very dangerous, but there are ergots. Ergot. What, ergot what? is the, the class of fungus to which this belongs. Okay. Uh, but, but, and some of them are, are extremely dangerous. But this one is soluble in water, is not dangerous, and is basically LSD. They were, they were, they were drinking LSD in the Temple of Eleusis, and they were having revelations about the meaning of life, and they were creating great philosophy and brilliant ideas at the time. It's, of course, massively connected to, to this surge of intellectual activity in, in ancient Greece. But ayahuasca... Or even, even before we get to ayahuasca, what were we discussing earlier? Is the pineal gland that you see represented in like, um, like as the pine cone? Pine, I the saw pine it cone, when I was in the yeah. Vatican. There's like Man, this there's pine one cone. Of, there's one at the Vatican. They're pictured in, in many of the Mesopotamian reliefs that show the seven sages. They're holding a pine cone to somebody's head, you know? Yeah. Um, there, there, there's uh, a suggestion that the pineal gland, it has been suggested that the pineal gland secretes dimethyltryptamine. DMT. DMT. I, I think that the more recent work on that suggests it probably doesn't, but that it's a, lo a locus for endogenous... All of us have DMT in our bodies. We're all illegal here. <laughs> yeah, we're all carriers. <laughs> we're all carriers. Um, it's a natural brain hormone. Yeah. Uh, the exact question of where in the body it's generated, some people think it might be the lungs these days. Wherever it is, uh, it's there, yeah. and, and um, the, the pineal is associated with it in, in a number of ways, and it's associated, the pineal is the third eye, it's the, it, it, it's, so, so it was an eye, the pineal was an eye, it still is in some amphibians. Uh, it oh, has a that's lens. why it's called the third eye. It has a lens, a cornea, and a retina. Some, We've just evolved out of it. Yeah, it's uh, gone deeper into the brain, it's no longer light sensitive, but it's still, the, it's still arguably the third eye. 
Um, so, so the connection of the pineal and DMT is um, is not absolutely clear, but there is there is likely some some connection. Okay, so the idea of us looking for ourselves in the past, we're looking at how people build the pyramids, and we're going, well, you know, we have these uh, cranes. Where are your cranes? Where are your cranes? Yeah. Instead of looking for the things that we are not utilizing, that they may utilize, which are psychedelic drugs, and maybe that gave them access to. It's stupid to use the word powers because I think it kind of dismisses everything, but it maybe they give them access to some sort of like otherworldly knowledge that could have helped them create. Well, it's an interesting discussion, actually. Yeah. The the interesting thing um, about psychedelics, one of the many interesting things about psychedelics, is. Um, for, for a start, new evidence that's emerging from scientific studies. At last, psychedelics have been taken out of the closet and are being examined for their therapeutic potential. And one of the things that it's very clear that psilocybin definitely does is... That's mushrooms. Mushrooms, yeah. yeah. Which is closely related to DMT. It's a kind of orally edible, orally ingestible form of DMT. Uh, they um, promote neuroplasticity. They, they, they cause new neurons to grow in the brain. They make us smarter. Uh, let us um, pay great tribute to, to Terence McKenna, uh, a brilliant thinker in this field whose book, uh, who, whose stoned ape hypothesis yeah. and whose book, The Food of the Gods, was one of the early recognitions that, that psychedelics may have been the trigger that took our ancestor out of millions of years of boredom and put them on the path that we recognize as, as uh, modern humanity. Yeah. It's a, it's a perfectly reasonable thing. The, also, the way that psychedelics are very helpful with depression is very interesting. Um, and and why, is the, why is that the case? Depression, and I speak from experience because I've suffered myself from a long period of depression back in the early 90s. Depression um, is a very narrow, rigid frame of mind. Where, where you get locked into recurring patterns of thought that keep, and they're very negative, and you keep on repeating them to yourself, and you start hating yourself, and you just can't bear anything, and you, you're locked, and you can't escape from it. And what psychedelics seem to do is that they break that pattern. They just break it completely. And, and, and in this case, for depression, what seems to work best is a massive dose rather than microdosing. Microdosing is great as well. You have to snap yourself out you of it. You've got to snap anyway. yourself out of it. Get there's out all, of yeah, there's also like, I think in depressive states, there's a narcissism wrapped into it. Maybe and it, so, yeah. Not in narcissism in terms of like, I'm the best, look at me, everything's about me, but in the negative side of that. It's all about is, you still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's just, and that constant negative thought, but taking and having a psychedelic experience will make you realize maybe how small you are yes. in the grand scheme of things or how you are intertwined yeah. into the fabric of humanity yeah. so it can break out of that. Yeah, yeah I like Ego that. death will disconnect you from the universe conspiring against you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You're not that important. And if you, yeah. if you belong to a species that has been making the same kind of stone tool without any changes for more than a million years, Two things are happening. Clearly, cultural information is being passed down, and clearly, you're locked in a very narrow frame. And then suddenly, it changes, and our ancestors start producing this extraordinary cave art, this amazing cave art. Whether, whether you're talking about that, that site, Serrania de la, la, la Lindosa in, in Colombia, or whether you're talking about Lascaux Cave in France, the art is stunning. And it is classically psychedelic art. It is, it is featuring geometry, patterns of swirling dots, uh, zigzag lines. There's uh, Serrani de Landosa, and there's uh, one of the extinct Ice Age uh, megafauna with the arrow pointing at it up there. Um, wow. the, 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 the geometry that's in there, the swirling dots, uh, the, the, the sort of interlinked chains that are shown on, there on the left, these are, these are all classic psychedelic visions. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Very often, 
often in, as people enter a, a deeply altered state of consciousness, it starts with geometry and patterns, and then it manifests more into entities. And those entities are often therianthropic in form, Greek therion, wild beast, anthropos, man. They're part human, part animal in form. Mm. Not something that you see every day, but something well, that is very common in frequently Egyptian. common, very common in Egyptian art and yeah. very, very common uh, in deeply altered states of consciousness brought on, by, brought on by psychedelics is the encounter with entities who then appear to communicate with us. And again, this is where the archaeologists roll their minds because they like to think that, uh, you know, consciousness is entirely local to the brain. It's all manufactured by the brain and this is just our brain on drugs whereas in fact the 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 opposite seems to be true the brain seems to be acting as a receiver for consciousness rather than as a manufacturer of consciousness uh, and what does that mean well what it what it means is that we have to function in a in a very tough physical universe this is this world yeah. we got to we got to know the laws of physics even if we don't know them you know, as written down in scientific yeah. textbooks, we've got to know that if we bump into that wall, it's going to hurt. Yeah. We've got to understand all of that. And naturally, our main focus is on our physical survival in this, in this physical realm. But there, but there and, and what's useful for that is what, what is rightly called the alert problem-solving state of consciousness. But there are many other states of consciousness to, that are available to us. And psychedelics unleash a completely different state of consciousness from the alert problem-solving state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in that state of consciousness, we have these extraordinary experiences. And, and amongst those experiences, the most important are the encounters with entities that communicate with us. Now, we have a problem in trying to decide what is, what is going on here. A, a very important project just underway at Imperial College in London, and another project that's going to be launched in Colorado, I think in Denver itself, within this year, uh, where human volunteers, I hope to be one of them in Colorado, <laughs> they, they turned me down in London because I've suffered from epilepsy mm. since 2017. And uh, there's, no, there's no indication whatsoever that DMT would cause epilepsy, and I've smoked loads of DMT, and I know it doesn't cause epilepsy. Right. But understandably, having gone through all the legal hoops they don't to get permission, yeah. they don't want me dying in their, you know, in their lab. Yeah. So, so they've not accepted me as a volunteer, but I'm hoping I might get accepted as a volunteer here in America. What it is is extended-release DMT, DMTX. DMT is normally... Wow. Uh, so very, it's just going to keep you high? Crazy. Keep you high for an hour, yeah. yeah. Instead of, what is DMT, like five minutes, ten, ten, minutes, ten minutes? And how long so. does it feel oh, when you're high dude. for five minutes, ten minutes on DMT? Oh, when you're in the DMT space, it can feel like forever. So an hour is if almost you, horrifying. Does time not exist? Well, yes, this is what many of the volunteers say, is that, is that, that it, it, it's an alarming prospect to be in that yeah. space for an hour. They, they're being delivered it it's by terrible. drip constantly and in, directly into their bloodstream. They can signal at any time, I've had enough, if they're really feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. But, but by and large, most of the volunteers uh, went, went through with it. I, I moderated wow. a panel with five, four of the volunteers. Anything interesting that they and say And a gentleman about called Andrew Gallimore, who's invented the technology that's going to be used in Colorado. Yes, the very interesting thing is that all appeared to be meeting essentially the same entities. These uh, are the gnome-looking Machine elves. They, they might be machine it. elves, they might be gnomes, they might be therianthropes, but they're playful, they're tricksy, they're tricksters, and they, they convey knowledge. And they're also moral teachers. This is the funny thing. They make us confront our baggage. How so? Um, well, I, I can say in, in my case, I recently had an experience with the other kind of DMT, very recently, which is, um, which is 5-MeO DMT, 
the, the DMT we're talking about is NNDMT. Okay. Um, and that is the one that most frequently produces entity encounters. Um, and the this, this sense of telepathic communication with entities. And who, science is not in a position to write that off. You know, quantum physics is looking at the possibility of multiple dimensions, very open to that possibility. Maybe what's happening is that our consciousness is getting retuned by DMT to, to gain access to dimensions of reality that are normally close to us. We think reality is just this, but actually it's all this. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, in a deeply altered state of consciousness, the need for the alert problem-solving mindset is damped Suppressed. down and we can open up to other, to other areas of reality. Who knows what's, what's, what's going on there? Um, but but um, the, the, the issue is, are people learning something new in this state? This would touch on the question of whether psychedelics were helpful in energizing an ancient civilization and getting it, getting it going. Um, I would cite the case, very well-known case of Kerry Mullis, uh, the polymerase chain reaction PCR test, which has been fundamental for, for all DNA work subsequently. Uh, he admitted openly that he would never have made that discovery if he hadn't taken LSD. Wow. LSD gave him that discovery. You said you recently had an experience with the other type with of With 5-MEO. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what was that? It was beautiful. It was, it was, it was, it, it, it okay, so 5-MEO DMT, it's a bit controversial because in, in the basic form, it comes from the secretions of a particular kind of toad. Um, and those secretions can be scraped off and smoked directly. In that case, the smoke is um, quite cloudy. Um, and and uh, you're, you're ingesting not only the 5-MeO-DMT, but other elements that are in the secretions mm. of the toad. It's possible to have synthetic 5-MeO-DMT, which is pure, which doesn't have the other, other elements in the secretions of the toad, and which doesn't involve killing toads. Um, and that's the kind of 5-MeO-DMT that I had, uh, was, was in a, a pure synthetic form. Um, I was alarmed before I did it because I've had alarming experiences on the other DMT, NNDMT. Uh, our facilitator helped me out and helped others in the group out by giving us uh, MDMA first. We had, we had- <laughs> wow. You were getting it in, Cram. We're totally getting oh. it in. It's only, it's only the second time in my life I've ever experienced MDA. But oh, that's great, MDMA, isn't it? What a great thing. Oh, it's amazing, <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. And yeah. You feel so just overwhelmed with love. It's yeah. just such a beautiful thing. Yeah. So we had that three or four hours before we had the 5-MeO DMT. And then three at a time we lay down and, well, we first sat up to, take one massive deep inhalation on the on the pipe and then hold it in and then release it and then uh, my wife Santa can do this and sit up she does it with NNDMT and 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 she does it she did it with the 5-MeO as well just sit sit up and she does these mudras very very present i have to lie down i can't i can't be seated i can't be standing up i got to lie down flat and i actually pulled on a, a, an eye mask as I, was, as I was lying down. And then just this, the only vision, visionary element of, of the 5-MeO was like a feather with an eye at the end of it. But most of it was, was about how I need to honor and respect and love my wife uh, and, and how I... That was the mother she was doing. 
Is get you to see that. <laughs> <laughs> you know that I have to, yeah. But 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 that that I that I have a problem with anger. I get angry too quickly, and that and that uh, that anger can be very hurtful to other people, and particularly hurtful to my wife. Uh, and and it showed me that, and and, and basically said, you gotta you gotta fix this. Um, and how does it show to you? Is it it showed, intuition, it, it, or it was more. It was more intuition. It wasn't. It wasn't a scene of me shouting, yeah. but it was. It was a recognition that that's what I do, and that it's harmful and useless, and it's harmful to me, and it's harmful to everybody around me. So there's a communication with a celestial being without any words at all. Without any words, but you get you get it. The other thing that I, the other intention that I said, I, I had three goes on the pipe on that day, um, with about an hour and a half between each one, and and on the third go my um, intention was more selfish. My intention was that I should, uh, that could it help me to get rid of my migraine headaches? Because I suffer very badly from migraines. In fact, it's a kind of curse. Um, and I wanted to focus on that. Maybe there's some way that it could have could affect me. And I did feel, perhaps it was my imagination, but I did feel fingers massaging the back of my head where migraines often start and then massaging my temple. And then, and then abruptly it stopped and it returned to the issue of my relationships. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, I thought, I thought that, I thought that it stopped like that because the the 5-MeO DMT had fixed my migraines. But the very next day, I had another massive migraine. And I think what happened was that 5-MeO DMT was saying, actually, we can't fix this. Let's move on to something more important. It was an extraordinary experience. I wouldn't recommend anybody to do it uh, completely alone uh, or any kind of DMT. I think yeah. it's important to have a responsible facilitator who's used to handling people in this state. Everybody responds in different ways. Yeah. Some people can really freak out. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing to freak out. It's not necessarily a bad thing to feel fear. But you want somebody around who's a sitter, who understands the medicine, and and who can help you, and who can help you through that. You said earlier that it removes you from the problem-solving consciousness yes. state, which and, we're normally in. We're right. normally thinking of the next problem we have to deal. How do we fit? And then I think oftentimes in that state, we're not dealing with the problems that we have internally. We're not dealing with the no. trauma, the relationship, no. those things. So it's- Often we're blaming them on other people. Exactly. Yeah. So what's kind of interesting to me is even the way that you describe it, it's put a pause on those problems that we feel like we have to solve in every second to do kind of like self-work. Inner work, yeah, yeah. I wonder what is on the other end of self-work. Like I wonder when you get through a lot of those things that you need to work on, where else they can take you. Because I don't think they go, you're good, see you later. Mm -mm. Maybe you start to seek some of that. Maybe like maybe you need to deal with all of your stuff before you're ready for that higher consciousness. Or maybe both things can happen all the time because virtually every powerful psychedelic journey I have, uh, and ayahuasca is certainly that, and my last ayahuasca journey was in 2019. Uh, DMT, NNDMT more recently, and then 5-MeO DMT, they, they all sooner or later deal with my baggage. I carry a lot of baggage. Yeah. They, 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 those of us who carry less baggage tend to have a gentler trip, but in my, in my case, it's right in my face and you gotta deal with it. And you keep going after it. I keep going after it because it's very useful teaching and I keep slipping back into bad habits. So it's a reminder. Yeah, and, and, and that's it's really important to recognize that these substances are not a magic pill. 
which is going to fix think, you overnight. I think people use them as that. They're not. They're I not. Think, I think they've become trendy in a way, and I think a lot of people are seeking out ayahuasca because they're like, hey, I have this block, and if I just do this ayahuasca, it's going to fix it for me, and then it's done. Chances are yeah. it'll be done for a few weeks, and then you'll fall back into the old path. It's like a chiropractor or something. Yeah. You, have yeah. To, yeah. You, you have to carry on the work. Yeah, the, the, the real work begins after the session. So, so it's a recognition of what's going on, what you have to confront. And then you have to do that work. And afterwards. then you have to do that work. That's but as to as to novelty, um, I mentioned Kerry Mullis and the polymerase chain reaction. Um, the the other interesting one is um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Did I mention them? No, but but they're they've been. Uh, they also dabbling. they also. Ad, ad, were very forthright, particularly Wozniak, that that the Apple computer would not have been invented without LSD. Wow. Um, wow. And, and um, Francis Crick, who's the discoverer of the double helix form of DNA, along with other colleagues, he was a regular user of LSD in the 1960s before it was illegal, um, and, uh, and the 50s. And he um, also uh, suggested that he first got it. He got the double helix form under the influence of LSD. So these are ex scientific examples wow. of, yeah. of, people, of people who are making a, a quantum leap forward in knowledge as a result of their psychedelic experiences, not as a result of their alert problem-solving state of consciousness that we value so highly, but as a result of a completely other state of consciousness. In my case, the novelty I got was um, I was given a novel uh, during five ayahuasca sessions in Brazil. Uh, I had never written novels before. I always write nonfiction, and I still mainly write nonfiction. Um, but I was given a novel. I was given the whole plot of the novel, and I ended up writing that novel. No. Between the, wow. the session was in 2007. I finished the novel in 2010. It was called no. Entangled. I had no idea that I had a novel in me, and, and perhaps my readers don't like it. I don't care. I found an area of myself that was new to me, and I was able to... The to, entire story existed to you. Yeah, yeah. Now, story. explain to me how it, exi it existed, like plot, Beginning, middle, end, or sure. existed like yeah, character. I saw, I saw, I saw the principal characters, and I saw the setting. Uh, it was two young women, one living in the time of the Neanderthals, and one living today, who were literally entangled in space and time. Hmm. And and it was the use of psychedelics in both times that enabled them to be to, to be entangled, and that they were brought together by an entity that they referred to. Sorry, this, my, my critics are gonna go wild with this. Go. They're gonna drug shame me this is forever. This is but good. you know, um, it, they, were, they were brought together by an entity uh, called the Blue Angel, uh, whose, whose purpose, that, that there's a demon who travels through time called Sulpa, uh, and he's seeking to destroy everything that's good about humanity, and, he do, and he's doing that in two time frames, in the time of the Neanderthals and today. And this blue angel entity brings together these two young women in these two different time frames to do battle against the demon. Uh, that, was, that was the story that I was given and that was the story that I wrote. Do you see it like a movie or how does that present itself to you? I did see it a bit like a movie, yeah. Wow. I, did, I, I saw scenes. I wow. saw, I saw my, my young character from the Stone Age, Rhea, you know, throwing stones very very brilliantly mm -hmm. uh, at, at, her, at her enemies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I saw the connection between these two, be, mm -hmm. between these two women and the, and the sense of a supernatural battle of good against evil uh, against which the human story is played out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that ultimately we humans always have a choice 
we always have a choice between good and evil. It might be at a very small scale or it might be at a very large scale. If it's at a very large scale, it can do enormous damage to human society as a whole. If it's at a very small scale, it can do enormous damage to us and those immediately close to yeah. us. Um, but it was that it was that sense of that, that happening. Anyway, I didn't have a novel in me before that. Hmm. I'd never tried. Have you seen other works, not just literary works, but film, music, that you've immediately connected to and thought, oh, this is inspired by hallucinogenics. This reminds me of an experience that I had. Is there, is there, it could be a cartoon for children. Avatar. But, <laughs> right, 100% or no, like. Yes. But isn't Avatar from, what was that, uh, the original people say that. Uh, Pocahontas? Pocahontas, I think. No, 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 there's like a, um, almost like an anime thing that people thought it was a little I'm not, bit I'm not sure, but, some, but somebody involved in that story was was uh, definitely experiencing altered, altered really? states of consciousness. Apparently JFK I, had experiences with, with uh, psychedelics. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, wow. Um, I, 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 again, this is, some, this is a mistake that our society has made, is to cut us, and maybe it's not a mistake, I don't really do conspiracy theories, but maybe it is a deliberate, maybe it was a deliberate thing back when the war on drugs was declared. It's under, you, you know. Well, we did a lot of research with psychedelics. Psychedelics lead people to ask questions. They don't, they don't leave us comfortable with the prevailing order of things, Ooh. both in ourselves and with the, the way society functions. As <laughs> and we begin to get, be, become critical and questioning in a way that we might not have been before. Yeah. And I think it, this was felt to be dangerous uh, and, and they were demonized with lies and, and complete dishonesty, but they were they were. Do demonized. you remember when psychedelics were gaining popularity this is what nineteen. Um, when you say gaining popularity, 60s, you, uh, mainstream popularity. Well, I don't think you could call hippies, you know, mainstream in it's any so way. So funny. The way that we look back on them, they were the mainstream. Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was like they're the dominant culture, but I guess they were fringe and odd for the time. They were, they were fringe and odd, and they were so funny. And they, and they were feared by those rooted and grounded in, in mainstream culture. Yeah, hippie uh, was a pejorative, right? Yeah, it was a pejorative. <laughs> He's just a hippie. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, was, it, was a neg it was a negative term. So I guess, I guess that we're, we're looking at a, a shift in human consciousness that certainly began probably in the late 50s and was, was well, well underway in the 60s. And had it been allowed to continue, it might well have transformed society in many, many ways, but then it was clamped down upon and all these lies and propaganda were spread, uh, false stories about how dangerous psychedelics are. I want to be very clear about that. Psychedelics are extremely serious business. Yeah. Uh, and this needs to be understood. I, I do not believe that psychedelics are for children or yeah. cannabis for that matter. I think that I think we'd be much better keeping them out of the hands of children if they were totally legal yeah. and it was accompanied by wise advice. Um, they can also unearth existing uh, psychological yes, issues. They can. So you have to they be can. really dangerous. Yeah, if, really if, careful. If, yeah. if you know, somebody's su suffering from, from schizophrenia, yeah. Psychedelics could be very bad news. So, so, and a lot of people don't know that they have schizophrenia. A lot of people don't, especially know. if so, they're. So there is an element of there is an element of danger and risk, and this is why a, a, a sitter who's deeply experienced with the substance is sitter is, is your shaman. Yeah, essentially. yeah. yeah. I, we haven't yet invented a word for shaman in Western culture, hmm. right. but we need to. The word comes from Tungus Mongol. It means one who sees, right. uh, and and it was then applied by anthropologists because they found that that. That figure, that person 
who played that role was found in multiple different cultures yeah, all around yeah, yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, let's just call them all shamans. Right. Um, but the word comes from a, from a specific culture. Um, and and uh, we don't have a word for that in our culture yet. Uh, facilitator or sitter are the, ones that, are the ones that I use. This is one of the many areas where Western culture would do well to learn from indigenous cultures that yeah. have been using psychedelics responsibly for thousands and thousands of years. What is responsible psychedelic use to you? What do you start with? You do it with intentions, not, meditation, things like that. Yeah, it's intentions, meditations. It's not recreational. You're not you're not taking it to have a party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're taking it to make contact with the dead. Ayahuasca means the vine of the dead or the vine of souls. Ibogaine is the iboga is the plant that enables people to see the dead. That's what these that's what these things mean. There, there's so much of a connection to the afterlife with them, um, and that's a serious inquiry. You know, if you've if you've lost a relative recently uh, and you've not had closure, it can be very beneficial to have an afterlife contact mm-hmm. with that person. And and many people report this experience. I've had the experience myself with 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 iboga. Really? Yeah, I met my, I met my dad. He, Get he out passed here. away shortly before that. Now again, the scientists could say, ah, you were just fantasizing that, it was just your imagination, but I met him. Fuck the scientists, so what happened? He came to me in the vision, it was shadowy, um, but he he basically made me feel okay about the key issue, which was I was not with him at his deathbed. Um, And I I was haunted by that. And and after that, I didn't feel haunted by it anymore. And and, uh, increasingly with, with my experiences with psychedelics over many decades now, uh, I have um, I have no fear of death. I don't I don't fear death. I do fear pain. I do fear humiliation. Old age. I'm I'm 72, 73 next birthday. You know I have to be realistic about this. I only have so long uh. in this incarnation. Um, and uh, as we get older, our bodies get infirm, get weaker. We become more and more dependent. I don't like being dependent on others in any way. Um, and and I detest pain. Uh, and I would like to, uh, who doesn't? And yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to avoid it as much as possible. But death, I don't fear, and I, I'm, I'm not even anxious about it. I, when it comes, I, I regard it as the next great adventure, and I hope that's what it's gonna turn out to be. But who knows? Nobody can say the definitive word on death. Yes, our bodies die, but does our consciousness die? We don't know that. Any scientist who says you're just a meat robot, there's nothing else to you but your physical body, they're stating an opinion, not a fact. So for me, it's the beginning of a next great adventure. And I think psychedelics help with, they've helped me with this. And I know from the recent science that's being done uh, that they are helping people who are terminal, who are anxious about death. Yeah. Again, psilocybin is the one that's most generally trialed in this respect. They tend to lose the fear of death. They don't fear it. And losing the fear of death is, I think there's a difference between a fear of death and a fear of maybe missing out on what's going on. For example, like let's say you were to do a, a, some sort of like rock climbing thing with no ropes, mm-hmm. you would probably be afraid of dying. I'd be afraid of I'd be afraid of falling, and I wouldn't look. I re, I regard life as a precious gift. I, I I am fortunate enough, and so are you, and so are all of us in the, this room to have been born in a human body. Yeah. Uh, and and to have this this 
big brain and to be able to actually to be able to make choices between good and evil and to live the experience of life. This is a theater of experience. We will come into it as children. We will go through it all our years. We will be confronted by all sorts of opportunities to learn and to grow and to develop. And I, I regard that as a gift. So I'm not into taking foolish and unnecessary physical risks. I have taken them when they're necessary. Santa and I both nearly lost our lives more than once during our diving expeditions. Um, this is, uh, we've been, we've been into war zones on, on our research. We've had bullets fired at us. If the risk is worth taking for a project that I'm pursuing that is close to my heart, yeah. I will do it. But I won't foolishly or unnecessarily yeah. take, a, take a risk. Seems like a waste yes. to, to, to do that. Risk in itself has no virtue. It's, it's, it's necessary risk that has, that has some virtue. virtue. Um, but, but, but I don't know if that answers your question. It does, it does. Yeah. yeah, because I think it's important to have a fear of death. Yeah. And I think as we have more things that we don't want to leave, loved ones, yes. family, uh, you know, the beautiful things that success brings, I find myself going, is it worth doing this stupid, frivolous activity where I could potentially lose out on all these beautiful things that the I've been able to no. get? Exactly, no. It's not. So that's not the type of no, death. No, it's I'm speaking you to you as a, as a man whose next birthday is 73. And you're like, one of these days, yeah. it's gonna happen, I, I, and I mean, I've in lived. truth, it's, it's the door of death stands right beside us, all of us, every minute of every day. Yeah. It can happen at any moment. Yeah. Um, whether through an illness or an accident, just can, you can be gone, just, just like that. But by and large, as you get older, it does get closer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you start, you start to think about these things. And then inevitably I've thought, well, I don't know how long I have, I have left. Um, but I, what, what is clear to me is that I'm not going to hasten my death, but, but that, that if it comes, I'm not going to regard it with fear and yeah. horror. I'm, I, I want to be as alert as possible and as awake as possible. And I hope to be, I hope to be ushered through the doorway of death uh, with a psychedelic journey. Oh. All right, guys, we're gonna take a break for a second because listen, some of you guys did the tough thing during COVID, okay? You paid your people, you pulled your business through the pandemic, and now doing a tough thing could qualify you for up to $26,000 per employee at covidtaxrelief.org, okay? Government funds are available to reward companies with two or more employees who stayed open during COVID. This is not a loan and you don't have to pay it back. This program is complicated, but nobody knows more about it than the CPAs and tax experts at covidtaxrelief.org. You pay nothing up front. They do all the work and share a percentage of the cash they get you. Businesses of all types, including nonprofits and churches, can qualify, including those who took PPP loans. Even if you had increases in sales, you did the tough thing for your employees during COVID, okay? Let covidtaxrelief.org help you get up to $26,000 per employee. Visit covidtaxrelief.org. That's covidtaxrelief.org, covidtaxrelief.org. Now let's get back to the show. All right, guys, we're gonna take a break real quick because you need a better wallet. Exter is the world's largest smart wallet brand for a reason. They design innovative solutions to improve the way you carry your everyday items. All of them, right here. Quick card access, look at that, bang. All my cards right there. I don't have to search for anything, it's all right there, click of a button. Also, more importantly, it has two 
key tracker features. You know what that means? It is trackable worldwide. And these wallets offer RFID protection, or as Andrew calls it, their boot poof. You know, when you're out in foreign countries, sometimes they don't even need to steal a wallet. They could just get the information from out of your pocket, like that boop. RFID protection, that means it's skim proof. So if you're maybe in Greece when this episode comes out, this is the wallet that's perfect for you. And more importantly, Flagrant, as always, will hook you up. So if you check out these wallets at shop.extra.com slash flagrant, you'll get up to 25% off site-wide with the code flagrant. Again, that is shop dot E-K-S-T-E-R dot com slash flagrant. You get up to 25% off with the code flagrant. Now let's get back to the show. Are you spiritual? Like, do you believe in God? Or are you? I'm not a Christian. Uh, I don't belong to any of the mainstream religions. I don't, and I haven't for, for a very long time. Uh, but I think that, uh, I think that life is, a, is an enormous mystery uh, and that fundamentally for want of a better word, it is a spiritual mystery. We're on a spiritual journey here. I think that the mainstream religions have narrowed that journey down uh, into, into, in, 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 into dogma and into creeds, where, where in most of the mainstream religions, most of the time, whether we're talking about Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, the Abrahamic faiths, the, the monotheistic religions, uh, people, there are exceptions, but, but a lot of people are not having any direct contact with spirit. They're being taught what to think. They're being told what to think by a, basically a bureaucrat uh, who happens to be a priest or a rabbi or a mullah who's, who's saying, these are the teachings, you must adhere to these teachings. And actually, if you don't adhere to them, we're going to censor you and censor you in some, in some way or another. To me, that's no more spiritual than doing business out on the, on the stock exchange. You know? It's just, it, it, it's, a, it's an expert telling me what to think. Whereas, whereas a spiritual experience is direct contact with the quote unquote divine, uh, which is not necessarily some old bad tempered guy sitting up on a cloud, uh, far from it as a matter of fact. That, that is not, in my view, that is a, a, a misrepresentation of what of what spirituality is. We could get into all kinds of controversial areas here. I don't <laughs> have, know. have you been in direct contact with a higher power through your experiences? Um, yes, on psychedelics, I've, I've, particularly on ayahuasca, I have felt the presence of the entity that I call Mother Ayahuasca. Uh, you and felt the mother. I felt the mother, and I felt her, and I felt her teachings, and uh, I felt grateful. Um, what that was that like? In the most compelling case, she took the form of an enormous serpent who wrapped herself around my body. Serpents always coming back to They're serpents. always coming back. And, and Mother Ayahuasca often takes the form of a serpent, sometimes takes the form of a jaguar, uh, sometimes takes, not the motor car, right. uh, the puma, and sometimes takes the form of um, a human being. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, is there any fear? The message was, no, I didn't feel fear. I felt, I felt enormously enormously comforted. And again, I got a message that I've had many times is that you, that you won't be good at giving love to others if you don't love yourself, Mm. uh, if you're constantly hating yourself. And I, I, I've gone through long periods of myself, my life where I have felt very negative about myself. Mm. So, so that, you know, that was, that was a positive experience for me. I would say every experience I've had with ayahuasca has been positive, even the most challenging ones. Yeah, what was the toughest? Um, The toughest experience I, I, I hesitate to share this. In, in ayahuasca group, when when you're drinking with say a dozen other people, um, there becomes an element of telepathy 
or communication that can take place. And it happened that I was in that I was in one group, where it turned out later we we got the facts later that was one individual who shouldn't have been there. Um, in ayahuasca, there's a tendency for you to lower your barriers. Your heart opens. You're you're very vulnerable to other people. And unfortunately, and this is a phenomenon that I would warn anybody of who's drinking ayahuasca in the West today, um, or anywhere as a matter of fact, uh, is that, that there are people who are using that vulnerability to gain psychic advantage over you. And it was the feeling, first of all, it happened to, to my wife, Santa, who was beside me, and then it happened to me of an individual trying to enter our heads and, 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 and take, take control of us. Uh, and, and we learned more about him the following day, and it turned out he'd been there the year before uh, and had done exactly the same thing. We didn't know that at the time. He seemed to have developed some sort of psychic power. And when we questioned him about it, he said, I'm this basement shaman. I go around ayahuasca groups uh, because I benefit from them. And what he meant by benefiting from them was, uh, basically, I'm a psychic vampire. I, I draw people's energy. I take it away from them. So these dangers can occur. And that's where a good shaman will stop that happening. But Wait, how, how what did he, the ayahuasquero yeah. do? Uh, in this case, he did not do anything. It was most, really? un, most unhelpful. Um, uh, but I think he's learned greatly from that experience. But how, did, how does the ayahuasquero know that that is happening? Well... That's that, that's something where you have to tell them, and in this case, in this case, my wife Santa did tell the ayahuasca, uh, ayahuasca, but he did not. Uh, he said, "This person is trying to enter my mind. Yeah, They're trying to yeah, take from me." Yeah, yeah. And 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 there's a natural tendency to assume you're making that up as well. There's and you're lucid in that moment. You're lucid enough to describe what's happening. Yes, yes. You can often be lucid during an ayahuasca journey. You're speaking English to that person. Yeah, there's. Yeah. Yeah, you can be. You can be. And the person who is entering the mind is he sitting in another area? Is he hovering over? He was you? on a. He was on a a, a bed, not a bed, a, a mat on the floor, just two or three people away from us. Mm. Um, and, and we were not the only people who he affected. He affected other people in that room. And oh. there was there was a there was a you gentleman in that room is. who who. Yeah. Literally fell down the stairs from the ceremonial space to upstairs, trying to get away from him. Uh, wow. it, it, it really got very, very, very dark. Um, Did everyone confront him? I afterwards? think I described it in a lengthy article on my website. Uh, yes, two days later he was asked to leave um, because wow. because he kind of said, I, "Yeah, I do this. Um, he, 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 I, I benefit from the energy of others." And then, what exactly? What type of energy is he getting? Like, how is he benefiting? Yeah. Um, in the case, I can tell you particularly in the case of my wife. My wife, Santa, and I are both the same age. She's 73 next birthday as well. But Santa looks a lot younger. Mm. I, I, I look my age. Like, but mm. but Santa, Santa looks a lot younger. And he focused on her. He homed in on her when he asked her her age. And she told him his age. And, she, and he said, you're that young. And that's when he focused in on her. It was like she, she had some energy, and she does, that was energizing her and that was, that was making her a fantastic grandmother and a fantastic mother and the most wonderful wife on the planet Earth. Um, but she has that energy oh, within her. Oh, and he tried to absorb he wanted that, that energy. fuck. Did oh, he ask for that energy. And, and she got... He, uh, no, he did not. He, he, what he did was, at a certain point, when we were gathering to drink the brew, he put his arms on her shoulder and blew in her face. Like that. Now, in Amazonian shamanism, 
the breath can be used for different purposes, and one of the purposes can be used for attack. Uh, the, they fire things called virotes, psychic darts, at another individual. Uh, again, only people who've worked with ayahuasca will really get this, uh, and a lot of your audience will not, will not get this, and they'll think Hancock was a lunatic. But, but I'm just reporting to you what, what, what happened. Um, and and um, not only did she, was she psychically damaged by this attack, but she also became physically ill after the attack. Wow. She developed shingles. She still has shingles. As a, as a result of that would crop up again and again uh, on, on, on her back in exactly the place that one of his hands touched her. Wow. Oh, so it's yeah. just, it's just, a, it's just okay, a Okay, this thing. is great, hold on. So there's a physical manifestation of an emotional and spiritual experience yes. that she had. Mm -hmm. So if that can happen within your body, why can it not happen within anybody else's body? Why can it not happen outside of our bodies? Um, well, I think it depends. I think it depends on on how much you've lowered your guard. We're all on guard, you know. We all defend ourselves psychically as well as physically. Um, but that this is the danger of the ayahuasca state: that your your heart opens. And, and so and maybe there's an argument to be made for. Let's say that there was this war on drugs, right? Maybe they saw it as something that was too vulnerable to be handed out to the masses without a way to, if we're giving them the best case scenario. Sure, yeah. I don't think that we wanna treat the they's, whoever the they, the people in charge is with best case scenario, but this is a very vulnerable situation. You use people, you're seeing a perfect example of somebody using it for yeah. nefarious intent. Yeah. Like, yeah. Imagine the average person doing it on a Friday. I spoke to a psychologist yeah. that does uh, psychedelic therapy mm -hmm. and he even reported in a clinical trial these telepathic sort of revelations. Oh, wow. That common. even in a clinical trial inside like an actual medical room, yeah. there was a person on I think high dose ketamine or high dose psilocybin, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And the clinician that was observing them basically thought about their dog at home. This is a purely anecdotal mm -hmm. example, but thinking about their dog at home, like, oh, did I go let the dog out? And then the patient that was on high-dose ketamine took the shade off, took off the headphones and said, I'm thinking of dogs or whatever, Get and was sharing wow. effectively the same vision that they were thinking, yeah. even though only one of them was on high-dose uh, psychedelic. Okay, it's so here we go. It's surprisingly common. Real, real quick, right? Mark. <laughs> How do we build the pyramids? How do you organize 20,000 people, 30,000 people to be all on the same page and deliver the blocks in the exact same ways and cut them in the exact same shapes and, well, maybe not the exact same shapes, but to certain specifications. And you end you up get... with this perfect thing that weighs six million tons and is almost perfectly oriented to true north and is 481 feet high, you know, and, and contains slightest... two and a half million individual blocks of stone. And the slightest tweak or the slightest uh, miscalculation can turn the entire thing off and it won't even be able to stand You end up itself. in a corkscrew instead of a pyramid. If you make the slightest error down at the, down at the base. If you could find a way to, I don't want to even say manipulate, but access that sort of telepathic ability, it's just a better communication tool for yes. a project of this size. Yes, and let's not forget that there are other teleabilities such as telekinesis, which are also sneered at by Western science because we do everything, it. well, it's not so much a matter of belief. We do everything in our society through mechanical advantage. We're used to leverage, we're used to machines which do stuff, we look at cranes for building so on, so on and so forth. Um, it may be that there are innate human abilities that we're not, uh, that, that, that have actually lapsed in our society, but, but that are still there. And this is where, um, again, to those who sneer at such ideas, I would say take a close look at the work of Rupert Sheldrake. Um, Rupert Sheldrake uh, has, is a scientist and he's done a great deal of work on telepathy. Um, for example, uh, this may sound trivial, but dogs who know when their owners are coming home. Now, 
he did randomized trials where the owners would come home at very different times yeah. and other issues like the scent and so on were excluded. Yeah. Yeah. They always knew when their owner was coming home. At, at a, not always, but at a, at a statistically significant level. Yeah. Telephone telepathy. We've all had that experience, I suspect, where the phone rings and you actually know who's on the other end of the phone. How often does a woman make a part of your body rise without even touching it? <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting observation. This is the most... That's, yeah. that's kind of tele telepathy too. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about homo erectus. Oh, yeah, homo erectus. My favorite type of human. What, what, I would say, what I would say is that I... In all my books, in the thousands of pages that I've written, I have probably written no more than two or three pages on these extraordinary possibilities and extraordinary abilities. But when archaeologists attack me, it's they say Hancock reason. believes in levitation by the mind. You're and so in a really so. peculiar situation because it seems like you're unbelievably passionate about this specific, you know, I guess part of your life, yeah. right? Yeah. But writing about it, even speaking on it, I even can tell as we're talking about it right now, you're like, people are gonna use this to discredit this other thing that I've dedicated my huh? entire fucking life to. Yeah. Oh man, what a tricky situation. It is in. a tricky but situation. But we don't do it to other people. All right, like we don't look at Wozniak and be like, your computers aren't good. Yeah, no. You should have just invented that's, Apple. That's, dude. Because <laughs> they, that's because there's a narrative about the past which archaeology tells, and it's supposed to be a pretty much straight line evolutionary story. You it's know, much easier to digest like that, yeah. Through early agriculture to advanced industrialized societies. And, and the notion that there might have been a lost civilization, that we might have forgotten the whole episode from the human story, is very threatening to that narrative. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it's particularly threatening uh, when it appears on a major platform like Netflix. Yep. Uh, I've always been attacked from my work since I published Fingerprints of the Gods in 1995, but the level of the attacks and the character yeah. has ramped up yeah. enormously since, yeah. since the There's Netflix series. Yeah, it's it's also a sorry to cut you, but it's not only it's it's like a validation. It's like Netflix putting the stamp on this oh, makes people yeah. go, oh, this must be true, right? Right. If it's, it's on YouTube, it's like, oh, that's that guy. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Whereas I I try to make clear throughout throughout the series that I'm expressing my personal views and that yeah. I don't I don't claim to be a hundred percent. I'm not saying this is how it was. I'm saying this is how it could have been. There's a, there's there, a difference. There's a part of this, and I want to get back to the, this because I'm really fascinated by this, but there's one part of the Netflix series that I, I actually was really excited to talk to you in person so you could explain to me. When you were talking about the the difference in the color of the bedrock, I think you were in Mexico, mm, was it? New Mexico. Oh, it was New Mexico. Um, we, were, uh, we were at... Um, uh, there was like a line yes, that showed that's, like... that's the Younger Dryas boundary. Uh, and it was at Murray Springs okay. um, in uh, in New Mexico or Arizona. Pretty certain it's New Mexico. It was at Murray Springs. I was with one of the scientists from from the um, uh, Comet Research Group, yeah. uh, Dr. Alan West, uh, and he was showing me the, the Younger Dryas boundary. Well, it's about the width of a human hand, and it you see it running all the way through this draw. Now, we see it at all because there was a flash flood which cut the draw down, and the sides are exposed. It was always there, but you wouldn't know it was there unless the land had been cut and opened up as it was. And, yeah. and, and this Younger Dryas boundary uh, contains charcoal from wildfires. It can, and wildfires are what you expect when you have a bit of a comet air bursting uh, up above you. Um, it has uh, platinum, which is a rare, r very rare on planet Earth. It has iridium, which is even rarer. Yeah. Uh, it, there's the Younger Dryas boundary at, at Murray Springs. Mm. There, there it is. Um, and and um, it, it contains shocked quartz, evidence of quartz that's been melted at temperatures of more than 2,000 degrees centigrade. It contains carbon microspherules. 
yeah, they call it the black mat. Um, it's not only found there, it's found all around the world. It's found in Belgium, uh, it's found uh, in many different sites in America, it's found as far east as Abu Huraira in Syria. This was a global event. Uh, and, Got you. And, and it wasn't one object hitting one place. Comets have a habit of breaking up into multiple fragments. Excuse me. Some may be quite small, so small that they don't reach the Earth. They, right. they, they burn up in the in atmosphere, the yeah. The most recent example we've had is the Tunguska event, June 30th, 1908. Yeah, in Russia, right? And that was in Siberia, yeah. and it was fortunately over an uninhabited area of Siberia. Uh, they calculate that that object was maybe 60 to 100 meters in diameter. Yeah. It did not reach the Earth. It blew up in the sky, therefore there's no crater, but it flattened uh, 2,000 there, the flattened trees, 2,000 square kilometers of trees were just flattened by this thing. And they're flattened by air? Yes, the massive pressure releases. The thing. It, it's like an atomic bomb going off in the sky, mm. massive pressure release. Oh, so instead of the mushroom cloud going up, the mushroom cloud is pointing down, down at Earth. Down, gotcha. down. If, if this happened over any city, yeah. it would wipe out the entire population of that city. Right. And still nothing has grown? Uh, ever since? I'm not sure. I think it's probably regrown. These, these areas regrown. The one on the right is... Tunguska event, yeah. Mm. Um, the, the, I, I'm, I'm wow. not sure because I've not been to that part of Siberia. But, but it's interesting because it was the 30th of June, 1908, which is the peak of the meteor shower known as the Beta Taurids. Uh, we have, we have an, uh, the Earth has a relationship with the Taurid meteor stream. Yeah. We pass through it twice a year. And the astronomers who are working on the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis are pretty certain that the progenitor comet of the Torrid meteor stream was what caused those impacts 12,800 yeah. years ago. Uh, and we're still in relationship with it. There, the comet Enki is the best known bit of the Torrid meteor stream. Uh, it's about six kilometers in diameter, but it's a wow. fragment of an originally much larger, maybe a hundred kilometer diameter <laughs> that broke up into multiple, multiple pieces. And, and many of those pieces hit the earth or air bursted around 12,800 years ago and caused the onset of the Younger Dryas. That, I'm not saying that as a fact, I'm saying that is the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis yeah, yeah. documented in probably 100 scientific papers. Now. Can you bring up that image that you sent me about the asteroids or the comets that have hit earth? Yeah, yeah. Mark, uh, Mark sent me this picture. Mm -hmm. I believe it was you, Mark, that sent me mm -hmm. it. And it was... These are the, oh yeah, he sent me this picture. And here are the comets that have hit Earth. And I just looked at it and it's I thought this was- It's doesn't it? But wait, and I thought this was throughout history. No. This is since 94? Right. 1994? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like the universe is telling us to wake up. Rogan said, uh, we exist in a shooting, we live in a shooting gallery. Yeah. It's a matter of time. It's, it, it's, it's a matter absolutely of time. Yeah. a matter of time. And uh -huh. particular attention needs to be paid to the torrid meteor stream. Because we're gonna, we we're go gonna through pass it twice, through twice a year. year no matter we go what, through yeah. it in, in late October, early November, and we go through it in late June, early July. And it's 30 million kilometers wide. It takes 12 plus days for the Earth to pass through it on its orbit. Yeah. There are large objects in it. There are many small and harmless objects in it. Yeah. It's only a matter of time before we go and do it right now. Have an encounter. <laughs> yeah, before and, we have an encounter. With, and to clarify, with those. those some of those are actually just asteroids that uh, explode, I guess, in the Earth's atmosphere. So yes, it's not the just... vast majority do. Those sometimes, are all, yeah, yeah. sometimes they'll hit, sometimes there, there have been recent cases of a, of, of a bit of an uh, asteroid or comet that's hit a house. Uh, really? Yeah, there have been two recent cases this year. Yeah, there was wow. a woman in Alabama that was hit by a large asteroid that like left a bruise on her leg. 
What? I'm pretty sure, yeah. They do, they do make it to Earth sometimes. Somebody throwing around. But the vast majority are airbursts, but they uh, uh, shooting stars, you know. But they do, but they do, they do make it to Earth. Um, so we are in a cosmic shooting gallery, and uh, attention needs to be paid to it, and not because we have to live in fear of gloom and doom and our planet is going to be destroyed precisely because we have the ability and the technology now to do something to about it. To avoid it, yeah. If we, if we pay attention to it, rather than paying attention to all the shit we are paying attention to, yeah. like making war on each other and investing vast quantities in, in weapon systems to kill one another on an enormous scale. Yeah. This is the, the human race has got its priorities wrong. We're, we're still locked in a, in a frame of mind, a state of consciousness that is not serving the human race anymore. It's based on scarcity. Scare, it's, it's hatred and fear and suspicion. Yeah. The media are particularly good at that, explaining that because it, it gets audiences. But it's so it's so unhelpful, you know. When we should be we should be spreading love and, and confidence and hope. So how do you how do sorry how do we how do we how do we um, allow people to experiment with mind altering drugs without it being abused? My concern when weed became legal was that it was gonna be immediately abused and not in terms of the quantity used, the potency of it. Mm -hmm. Like the weed now, it's, it's not even reminiscent of weed, I feel like, right? It's like, it, it, like this is, if, if we're actually trying to get to like the natural part of it. I bought some that. New York edibles last night. Um, <laughs> Ow. Well, first of all, first of all, it's a little, pieces of chocolate, and each one contains 25 milligrams of THC. Why would you need 25? They're, they're, they're tiny, well, it depends how much you use it, you know. I, if, if, I'm, if I use cannabis very regularly, which I sometimes do, right. uh, and I really want to get seriously stoned, I might need 40 milligrams. Really? Um, and, and I felt in need of more than 25 milligrams last night for various reasons, but, <laughs> but, 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 but you know, trying to slice that second piece up with a plastic knife yeah, yeah. wasn't very, and I think I just possibly had a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> also, very potent, uh, you know. Apparently whereas, heat activates the THC in a different way. Is that, is that right? Um, like what, when it's baked versus like when you smoke it? Interesting. I mean, edibles, of course, as we know, are you're looking at five or six hours. Certainly, I, on edibles, I peak after about two and a half hours, and I'm still in there mm -hmm. two or three hours later. Mm. Whereas vaped, if I'm writing, I prefer to vape cannabis uh, because because I can titrate the dose. I can I, I can keep myself just at the place I want to be, without falling deep into yeah, where you place. can't even write anymore. Yeah, where I can't write anymore. Yeah. Um, so you know the, the uses. There there are different uses and purposes. So how do for we? It. But, but how do but, we do that with the well? With first, the first of all, you, first of all, first of all, you legalize everything because because the the hasty and and careless and the irresponsible use of these substances is largely happening because of the illegal regime. And there are, there are people making, making money out of pushing and selling these things as, as, as drugs. Mm. The first thing to do is to make them all legal. And I think the, um, but legal for adults, not legal for children. It would be much easier to explain to, you know, our teenage son or our teenage daughter that we would like him or her to hang on until they're 21. Because when you're 21, you can do whatever you like, just like everything else in our society, as long as you don't do harm to others. There's, there, and, and, you know, as I often point out, we have multiple laws already which completely govern 
every issue of doing harm to others. What's bizarre about the war on drugs is that they govern what we may or may not experience in our own consciousness while doing no harm to others. I think it'd be much easier to explain to a, to a teenager who's keen to get started, this is very serious, very serious matter. Take your time. The time will come. Your mind is a little immature at the moment. Wait until you're 21, and then it's your choice. You think 21? Would it be even later, maybe? I think that I think because we we allow so many other things to twenty one year olds, mm-hmm. um, I think that that would be a, a natural age to put on it. It's, of course, every individual varies. Some eighteen year olds are very mature mentally. Yeah. Some are not. Right. It, it depends. But if we're going to put something on it, I would say I would say twenty one is a good age. The example that the best example of why good advice works better than illegalization is tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that tobacco has never been legal. It's never been illegal. It's never been a criminal offense that could put you in prison and ruin your reputation mm-hmm. for life and make you unemployable to smoke a cigarette. Right. But as it happens, we have seen a huge decline in cigarette consumption, not because people are afraid of getting locked up, it's but because advice. they've had good advice. Good education. And they, and they believed mm-hmm. it. And I think we can do that with psychedelics, but the whole thing is tainted by the war on drugs at the moment. And we need to get outside. Just, uh, go out. You don't think it should be, like, off Akash's comment, you don't think it should be a little bit later when our brain is fully developed? Um, yes, that's, uh, uh, perhaps, it, perhaps it should. I, I, okay, I'll tell my personal story. My first ever experience with psychedelics was it was when I was 24 years old and that was in 1974 at the Windsor Free Festival in uh, just outside of London uh, when I split a tab of acid three ways with a couple of friends um, had the most amazing experience ever uh, but I, I, I saw one of my friends had a really bad experience yes. and, and I actually didn't go back to psychedelics until I was researching the specific book in which I write about psychedelics, which is called Supernatural, and has recently been republished as, as Visionary. Um, in order, I believe strongly... How old were you then, sorry? When, when I... Was, second, I second so 2003, so I was already oh, wow. 53. Wow, okay. Um, wow. Between the age of 24 and the age of 53, I had no psychedelic experiences yeah. at all. Um, I also did not consume cannabis as a young adult. I was 38 when I started mm-hmm. cannabis. Yeah, same, 38 actually. And, and, and I, initially, I initially found that it was something that I would have of an evening to help me get off to sleep. But when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, and here my critics are going to say, that's why he wrote that book. Yeah. Uh, when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, I decided to experiment with, with basically smoking all day, mm-hmm. which I switched to vaping. Interesting. It relieves the physical boredom of sitting in that chair for hours and hours every mm-hmm. day. Yeah. And I, help, I feel it helps me loosen up connections in, in my mind. It doesn't work the same for everybody. I don't, I don't get dreamy or dopey or, or lose connection. I, 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 stay, I stay focused. Um, but but so, so I was 53 when Santa and I went down to the Amazon and had our first ayahuasca experiences um, in, in 2003. Uh, and I was 38 when I started to become acquainted with, with, wow. with cannabis properly. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. The, the problem is pe- people are different. I just think I think the key thing is is let's stop making it illegal. Let's stop making it a crime. Mm. Let's stop let's stop shaming people because they're interested in psychedelics and ruining their lives. Uh, and then let's see what the best system we have. But we this is where we need to sit at the feet of shamans in hunter gatherer societies and learn from them how to handle these powerful experiences, which which we're not. And and I I feel strongly, but I. I'm not in a position to tell other people what to do. Mm. I can only share my advice. These medicines are not are not for recreational purposes. Yeah. Mm.
not not the psychedelics. And can you speak? MDMA now, that's a different matter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you see the beautiful. white supremacist that actually had like a moral revelation on a high dose MDMA clinical trial? Oh yeah, you can believe that. Yeah, I shared it. Basically, he was in a clinical trial to study MDMA's effects on something completely unrelated to race relations. He happened to be affiliated with white nationalist groups. He was mm -hmm. at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 right. and had been involved uh, throughout a long period of time, was fired from his job after his job found out that he was affiliated with these white nationalist right. groups. He happened to uh, enroll in the trial, did the study, and then as he left the, the study, yeah. he uh, basically elected to discontinue and said, I have to go do some work, mm -hmm. look up my name, you'll see my history, and you'll see why I have to leave. Yeah. And then basically re-engaged with the researchers again to say, I was a white supremacist, and through this chemical that gave me dramatic empathy, I now understood mm -hmm. why I was in such a hateful place and I yeah. just needed love in the first place. Yeah, ab yeah. Ab absolutely. This is That guy's racist, though. <laughs> like, if you gotta be on Molly to like black people, People, bro. <laughs> you are racist. Now, obviously, not everyone has this experience, but it is interesting. You know, human beings are filled with all kinds of prejudices yes. uh, and uh, all kinds of ideas about about other human beings. And 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 one of the, I think one of the great things about psychedelics is they can shake that up. Yeah. They can shake it up and and get us out of these out of these fixed patterns. But the question of legalization is complicated. I'm against bureaucracies. I'm against government. Yeah. I don't think I think governments are the most unhelpful things in the world today. Uh, uh, next, perhaps, to the mainstream religions. I think they're, cause, they're causing so much misery and chaos. If, you, if, if you're in government, it, it's in your interests to maximize to, to the negative light in which you put any kind of opposition. Mm. That's, what, that's what politicians do, and it happens at an, at an international level where one state so hates So there's no exchange state. of ideas, there's no... No exchange of ideas. Um, yeah, and, collaboration. And, and, you know, it would be a, it would be a thoroughly good idea uh, if if every leader of every country, anybody running for political office, were required to have a dozen sessions of oh, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, that Next. would be the prerequisite. Yeah, that that's the prerequisite. You don't you don't apply for the job if you haven't done this. Is the this is the bar that you have it. to set. You, you, you okay. have to have a dozen sessions of ayahuasca, yeah. and then you can apply. Yeah. Um, and, you, if you just gave the alt right Molly, that would probably help a lot. What is a Molly? The alt right oh, MDMA. Is MDMA. Oh, it's MDMA. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. They're also called ecstasy, right? Ecstasy. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah, we've had some. Well, the, this experience <laughs> I had, times. I had with MDMA was my Tesla. first real experience. Okay, so when you first try it. This is, you've never had it before. You are familiar it's with. It's not quite true. I had it. I had it once at Burning Man. Oh, dude, you go to Burning Man? Yeah, years when ago. When did you go? Sometime in the two thousands and late, maybe two thousand and seven. Some somewhere. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we go. I was. I was with Santa. Oh, this is great. Santa, but Santa at that time didn't want to take the MDMA okay. and I did and I took it and we got into a bit of a state about it because I felt I felt she should be in there. And yeah. All the wrong things I was thinking as usual. Of course. But I didn't thoroughly enjoy that experience. But this one that I had more recently where Santa and I took it together before yeah. we took the 5-MEO was just beautiful. And There's a pill called a and it is an ecstasy pill. So it's got MDMA but it also probably has some like Coke and some other stuff okay. in there, whatever. But it's probably the most amazing feeling I've ever had in my, my life. <laughs> like, I mean, it was, it was at Burning Man and we had a third of it. We are just sharing it and it was, don't get me wrong, at Burning Man, you're already filled, you know, you've already yeah. filled with so much love and appreciation yeah, and like fabulous your walls yeah. are down yeah. and there's, it's like everybody around you is also giving so yeah. much. So yeah. it puts you in this great giving state, but it enhanced it and 
I don't know. How long were you in the state? I mean, it was several hours, but what was really interesting about it was the music that I was listening to. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if this is possible, what I'm gonna explain, but let's just say. Okay. The music that I was listening to while I was in the state kind of captured the state. And when I would listen to that music afterwards, it would like trigger that emotional state for months. Now it stopped. Mm -hmm. But for the next few months, just hearing the music gave me a little bit of those feelings. It it was a fraction of what those feelings actually Mm -hmm. were. Something was happening in yeah. here. It was like Pavlovian. Like yeah. I heard that we were listening. There's this great DJ Blondish that we were listening to, and all these things kind of yeah. came together. It They're all connected amazing. together in your in your mind in some way. It's a yeah. flat, flashback experience. Why would we seek to deny adults the right to have these experiences? I mean, what, what's the sense of it? I don't. I, I just. What I would just you say? Worst it. case scenario. Like if we were making the argument for worst case scenario, what would it be? I think that we have the worst case scenario right now when-, when Which is not giving them the opportunity to Yeah, do. not giving the, uh, or, the or, or if, you, if you take that opportunity, you're breaking a law and you're running, you're yeah. running a risk and people got the right to break down your door and ruin, ruin your reputation. That, yeah. That's the worst case. We're already in the worst case scenario. Fair. So anything can be better than that. I just don't want people to, I want people to try these things and like it was great, obviously going with these guys in different times to Burning Man and like having them experience this amazing, you know, uh, I don't even—I don't want to call it a festival or party. Yeah, like uh, this amazing communal creation, experience, communal yeah. experience, right? Like it was—it was really awesome. I also know that there's somebody who is bored out of their mind mm-hmm. in a place that has very little opportunity, and they don't know what they're going to do with their life, and they're probably taking meth out of boredom, mm-hmm. and. I don't want them to be able to take math. Mm. I'd maybe rather them take this other stuff. Mm. So like I know worst case scenario in that regard, not in terms of what you've obviously been through and what so many other people have been through. So as much as I just want to open up the floodgates, I still want to pack them with enough, like you said earlier, information. Information. So it just doesn't get abused. I think the important thing to realize is the floodgates are already open. If somebody yeah, wants to have that experience, they're going to yeah, find it. Not, they're going to yeah, find it. And chances are that the product they are sold will not be as good as they would be if it were if That's it were true. fully legal. Then you have the danger of the black market with the fentanyl Can and be everything. Cut with all kinds of what shit? if it's yeah. only accessible through a therapeutic setting? Um, I'm not I'm not in favor of that because then that 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 empowers the so-called experts in our society to decide what we may or may not experience. And I think that I think that this is an issue of individual sovereignty where we have we we, we should have yeah. absolute sovereign right to make decisions about our Sorry, own you're not traumatized enough for ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. guy who's not even ayahuasquero could yeah. potentially say that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want it to be that way. Uh, but none that but I do want people who, who would like to experience psychedelic therapy where therapy is offered with it to have the opportunity to do so. So maybe the question and, is like, and this, this, yeah. this issue of end of life and, 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 and old people's homes, you know, um, I, I, I would like to pay tribute to Amanda Fielding, who is, um, who runs the Beckley Foundation in near Oxford in the UK. Amanda is now uh, in her early 80s. Uh, she has been a vigorous advocate of psychedelics uh, since the 1960s. Uh, she has funded a lot of the great research that's now going on in scientific labs uh, in, in, into psychedelics. Um, and uh, she feels strongly that, uh, that the misery and horror of old people's homes would be greatly facilitated yeah. Yeah. Uh, if psychedelics well, were What the fuck else they got to do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, great. And, 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 and again, being offered by experienced pra- practitioners. Yeah. 
the the lady who facilitated the five meo DMT session with MDMA that Santa and I had, um, she actually her, her main role is is to go and offer psychedelic therapy to to old people, mm. but it's having to be done under you know under the carpet rather than above. Hmm. It's a bummer. Have you experienced holotropic breathwork? Yeah, I'm not very good at it. I need to do. I need to do more work. I know that. I know that it can be beneficial. I have tried, but the monkey mind, you know, keeps going off in other directions. And, yeah. and psychedelics work better. What for is me. that? But perhaps I'm just being lazy. Well, you put yourself into an, uh, an altered state of consciousness through breathing. Yeah. Which you, which you can, and which reminds us that nature offers us many ways to get I've done something like that, and it was fucking intense. Yeah, Wait, really? It can be, it can be yeah, very intense. Yeah. Did you hallucinate? No, I didn't hallucinate, but I, like, started crying. I was sweating. Yeah. I was, like, I was a weird fucking experience. I was so tired afterwards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tired. This was relatively natural, recently. A natural release of It's just GMT. like, uh, yeah, yeah maybe, it was like a coach. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, Wow. Anybody who's really, really interested in the whole DMT story, I highly recommend the work of Dr. Rick Strassman from okay. the University of New Mexico. Okay. Uh, his book, uh, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He was the first, the first scientific researcher to work with human volunteers in DMT legally in the 1990s. And uh, Rick is a beautiful person and he's written a fantastic book about that experience. And he will be involved also in the new project that's going to take place in, in Colorado. Mm. So highly recommend Rick Strassman, DMT, the spirit molecule. Yeah. So Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, this is the thing that DMT volunteers uh, and I myself on DMT have repeatedly experienced encounters which, with what might be construed as aliens. Mm. Again, I'm handing a stick to my opponents to beat me with. Yeah. Uh, and so I would like to point out, and I went into this in, in depth in, in my book, uh, Visionary, now titled Visionary, used to be called Supernatural, um, that, that the experiences that shamans have with spirits, the experiences that people in the Middle Ages up until about the 1950s had with fairies and elves, and the experiences that people have with uh, aliens today, they're all the same experience construed through different cultural lenses. The, the details of the experience in every case are almost identical. There, once you get down to the phenomenology and examine the exact experiences that are reported, it turns out that they're all the same experiences, just that different cultures construe them in different ways. And right now we're construing those encounters as encounters with aliens. Uh, well, certainly they are alien to this, this realm, but are they coming in spaceships or are they crossing into dimensional space or are they all within our minds somehow? Mark, the guy that you spoke to, did you put that episode out yet? Yes. With Rick Barnett, yeah. Yeah. So Mark spoke to a guy who claims to have been abducted. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By yeah. aliens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, And um, Jay King. Yeah, has he dabbled with um, psychedelics at all? I don't know. I don't. I asked him sort of like... Uh, peripherally? Yeah, peripherally, and he didn't really seem to... He didn't elect that information outright. I didn't press on He it, may be a natural overproducer of DMT. Uh, it's <laughs> notable that people in the Middle Ages were repeatedly reported being abducted by fairies. Uh, shamans are repeatedly abducted by spirits. Uh, shamans have sex with female spirits in the spirit world. Uh, alien abductees today have, um, have sex with aliens and often produce hybrid children. It was the case with fairies as well. Uh, it's the same thing. We're just viewing it through different cultural lenses. I, I think, hmm. and I, I think it's very useful to to analyze this experience if you if you look at these earlier examples of how it was how it was construed. Yeah, there were like ancient civilizations that spoke of the star people, or mm -hmm. like is that a version of There's that? There's a or? fascinating 
um, imagery on the second shrine of the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, which is uh, in in the museum in in Cairo now. Uh, and what it is, it's a it's a gold. The whole shrine is covered in gold. And on one side of it is an image of individuals who are in mummified form, but they're looking up at a star and rays from the star are coming down into their forehead, right into their forehead. Uh, and, and talk about star people and talk about the pineal gland. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it seems like. Mm. Uh, let's see if we can find Any it. Any of these perhaps? Um, that's actually shrine? from the second shrine, but that's not the image I'm talking about. That, that may be the image. Let's have a look at that. Yeah. Uh, my eyesight's so shit, I can't yeah, see. It's not, a, it's not very high quality. No, that's not it anyway. Um, but but uh, anybody who searches f far enough and spends enough time will find it. It's a, it's a very famous, very famous image. Um, and there's this direct connection with the stars that, that is manifested in that, in that image. Hmm. So as far as global knowledge is concerned, all these ancient cultures building pyramids, building different mound structures, mm -hmm. connected to the stars in some capacity, I know it's been positive that there's ancient civilization that's potentially going around. Is it possible that it's just connection with psychedelics that occur naturally all over the earth and even internally with us through holotropic breath yeah. that could give well, those revelations? My, my view on, on the, a possible lost human civilization is, first of all, that that civilization, like all other civilizations on earth, emerged out of shamanism mm. uh, and that psychedelics and the use of consciousness-altering plants and fungi were fundamental to that shamanistic culture, just as they were to every other shamanistic culture. But uh, it took a different direction from some other ones and, and became capable of navigating and exploring the Earth at a, at a very, very early date and, yeah. and, and studied astronomy in an almost scientific sense. Do you think it's possible that this same experience happened to pre, what are we, homo sapien? We're so homo sapiens, yeah. Did it happen to, what were you yeah. bringing up earlier? Homo erectus, homo erectus Neanderthals. Neanderthals. Could they have also dabbled? Did I think they it's have the certainly, intellect? I think it certainly happened with Neanderthals. There's, there's uh, more and more evidence that cave art that was attributed to homo sapiens was actually done by Neanderthals. Mm. Wow. And it may be that the Neanderthals taught the ancestors of, of anatomically modern humans how to paint. That is, that is even possible. Uh, there's, 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 very strong evidence now that wow. Neanderthals were doing cave art and the same geometric patterns and the same entities appeared there. They're not so different from anatomically modern humans. And anyway, they live on in us because there's so much Neanderthal DNA up to, up to you know, yeah, these may be some examples of Neanderthal cave art. But did Homo erectus, didn't, I think you mentioned that they were sailing? Well, they, they certainly did sail because they got, um, they got, as far as I recall, even as far away as uh, some of the Pacific Islands, uh, wow. Micronesia, maybe even New Guinea. Um, but the problem is we don't have any evidence from that, that period, apart from a few skeletal and fossil remains. Uh, the evidence for psychedelic use in cave art is fundamentally derives from the art itself. Yeah. That was why that was why I went to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca in 2003. I was I I thought I had finished my inquiry into the possibility of a lost civilization. I was wrong. I went back to it later because new evidence, particularly Gobekli Tepe, came out. I was looking for a new subject that, that really interested me. Human origins interested me. And then the this sort of burst of symbolism and creativity that 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 occurs 
100,000 years ago or, or less. Uh, and, that, and that's when I started to look at cave art. Uh, and, and then I came across the work of a professor at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, David Lewis Williams. His neuropsychological model of cave art suggested that cave art was documenting experiences in deeply altered states of consciousness. And he made a strong case for that. Then I thought, okay, uh, let's look at cultures that are using deeply altered states of consciousness now. So I started looking at the Amazon and I came across an amazing book uh, written by Luis Eduardo Luna um, and, and uh, with paintings by Pablo Amaringo, an Amazonian shaman, uh, depicting his ayahuasca visions. And yeah, lo and behold, there were so many common points with the cave yeah. art. I'm a boots on the ground researcher. I can't write a book about something if I don't experience it. That's why I spent seven years scuba diving. So, you know, I said to Santa, we have to go to the Amazon and drink uh, <laughs> ayahuasca uh, if I'm going to write this book authentically. Um, and Did the cave, does cave art make more sense to you now after having the... Oh, completely, yeah. Yeah, it makes complete sense to me. Uh, it certainly wasn't about hunting magic. They weren't trying to cast magical spells on the animals that they wanted to hunt. Only about 2% of all animals shown in cave art are pierced by any kind of projectile, as a matter of fact. Uh, there's no evidence that they were eating the animals that are depicted in the cave art. A lot of animals are depicted, but, but shamans often experience themselves transforming into animals. Spirit, oh! spirit animals, right. you know? So it all, makes, it all makes much more sense to me. And the geometry that accompanies it and the, you know, the, the scintillating patterns, it's all psychedelic art, wow. in my view. Is it odd to have had these experiences and speak to people who haven't? Because as I talk to you right now, mm. I feel like you've existed uh, it's not another country. I feel like you've existed in like a different dimension, dimension or reality. Uh, yeah, like a, you know the Spider Verse, like a different uh, yeah, like as part of the multiverse. That's kind of what it feels like. And yeah. you've existed in both, mm. and you can relate to me on the things that I'm saying because you know what it's like. Yeah. But the things you're describing to me, I, I can't even really wrap my head around them. Go drink some ayahuasca. It makes me want to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm Go down. drink some ayahuasca in a properly controlled shamanic setting. Where, where the shamans know what they're... You gotta give me the name of that I fucking will. vampire before I go do it. <laughs> either, right? That's terrifying. He's on everybody's watch list now. Good. Yeah, yeah, he won't be going, but, uh, but there are, some, there are some, some good places. And I'm not saying that there aren't good places available in the West as well. But, but is that a common experience you've had with people? Like, I'm fascinated by how, what you're describing, but it is so foreign. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult for those who've not had the experience to relate to it. For those who have had the experience, it's very easy to relate to it. So I'm, trying, I'm kind of bridging two yeah. worlds. I'm, I'm try, trying to use my functionality in this realm as a storyteller, as a person of words, to bring across some element of that, of that experience and, and fundamentally to say to people, we shouldn't demonize this. We, we should consider that it's played a huge role in the human story. Has it dulled your experience within this reality that we share it all, knowing that there's this alternative no, it version? Seems, it seems more precious. So it's enhanced it. It's mm. enhanced it. That's I, cool. I, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had this incarnation, to still be in this incarnation, Yeah. as a matter of fact. That's another thing which you know I can't prove, um, but I, I do think reincarnation makes a lot of sense. Why is that? Well, firstly, because of... <laughs> yeah, you're talking for, that. For, 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 firstly, because of... Um, uh, Ian Stevenson's amazing study called Children Who Remember Past Lives. Um, Ian Stevenson was a, a, a psychologist and um, he was interested in reincarnation and he went to India. Our culture discourages children from remembering past lives. Uh, in India, they don't. Mm. And he went to India and he interviewed children in India up to, up to the age of seven. After the age of seven, it's all forgotten. 
tends to be all forgotten. We get so absorbed in this life. But up to the age of seven, there are distinct past life memories. And this appears to be true of all children. It's just that some cultures allow those memories to be manifest and others don't. And he did scientific work. So an example might be a, a, a child who remembered his name living in a village three or 400 miles away from where he's living now. Uh, he remembered the house that he lived in. He remembered an object that he'd concealed in that house in that past life. <laughs> then they no. would go to the house, they would find the object, they would know that there was There's a person. There's some crazy stories I've heard. Now this is, this is proper work, this is not woo-woo, this is uh, again <laughs> recommending a book, Ian Stevenson, Children Who Remember Past Lives. How stupid do you feel? <laughs> Wait, why? Catholic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, that's another reason why I'm, is it transhumanism that seeks to make us immortal in our physical bodies? Is, yeah. is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, the singularity. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I, I like the idea of the deck being reshuffled and coming mm-hmm. back and having multiple lives rather than being stuck in this one forever. Speaking of religion, I've actually been wondering, how do religious people take your theories? Badly. Because Bad, yeah. here's what's interesting. The only, the only thing, they, the only thing that, that generally rings a bell is the, uh, is the story of the flood. Mm-hmm. The story of the flood is very important to my work, and of course it's, it's found in the, in the Old Testament, and it's found in Islam, right. and it's found in Judaism as well. well here's this inter- and it's found in many other religions. And all jokes aside, I've actually been kind of like questioning my faith recently, and I was thinking this would actually make it way easier, because one thing I'm struggling with is the Earth is billions of years old, mm-hmm. humans that have existed for what, 100,000 years? Such out a totally blip on the radar. humans, about 300,000 years. It's 300,000 out of billions. Out but of if billions, you told sure. me, there's a reality in which, or a history in which humans are here and then a cataclysm happens because God's not happy with them mm-hmm. and then we restart mm-hmm. and then the same thing happens over and over again throughout history. As a religious person, I'm like, oh, that can explain away me being like, if God made all this for humans, why are we here such a small time in the earth's history? Mm-hmm. It, can, it, it, it can help. And, and you know, whether the realm we live in is, is created or, or has developed accidentally, uh, the absence of certainty about everything is an important part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were all certain, yeah. absolutely scientifically certain that death was the end and there's nothing beyond it, which we can't be, then we would have a particular attitude to death. Mm-hmm. If we were all certain that reincarnation occurs, uh, then we would also we, we might not take this life so seriously. We might we might uh, we might have um, uh, a flippant attitude towards it. Well, I'm going to come back, you know. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the lessons that this life has to teach are, are lessons that are based on the uncertainty of everything. We don't know what death is. We don't know what consciousness is. These are all mysteries. Right. We must make our choices against that background of mystery yeah. and, and decide what we're going to do with the gift of life that, mm-hmm. that we have. However however it came our way. So the Greeks believed in reincarnation and their view was that, that we drink of the waters of forgetfulness before we come back into this life. And that that's part of the deal, mm. that, we should, that we should forget the past life. And in Buddhism, the, the only individuals who, who come back with full memory are the bodhisattvas. They are those who have been through life's multiple incarnations They've learned all the lessons that life has to teach us. They've, they've achieved nirvana, but they choose not to do that. They choose to come back to the earth plane to teach others, mm. to be guides to others. Uh, and they remember all their past lives. Mm. There are many different religions have different views on these, these things. It's, uh, it's only the Abrahamic faiths that, that are convinced that we just have this one life and you know, we've got a heaven or hell depending on what we do. <laughs> Graham Hancock, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being here. This is awesome.
This is so good. Dude. Thanks for having me here. It's been fun talking Absolutely. to you guys. Make so sure you check so out the I really debate appreciate it. Uh, in October. October 24th. Yeah. October 24th and, uh, is the date. Yeah. Check out all the books. Check out your website. I'm sure all the information is located there. GrahamHancock.com. Yeah, we'll everything, post it in the everything is there. And yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you so much for taking the time. Thank that you. Was excellent. Thank you. It's that been great so fun. Thank you. Thank you.